Blog Talk Radio. Hey, good morning, everybody. Good morning. And, well, good afternoon, depending on where you are. This is Kim with Black Free Thinkers, and we are here to challenge you to think and live for yourself, not convert you. And I'll say that one more time. We are here to challenge you to think and live for yourself. It's important that you understand that. And today we'll be doing a show basically talking about poverty in the United States. And we'll be touching on a number of issues that, you know, that should concern everybody. Not only people who are, um, you know, um, affected by directly by poverty, it affects all of us. You know, it it really does. It's not just, you know, quote unquote, the others or those people. No, it's all of us, because um, to some degree or another, we're all affected by the gap, by the wealth and inequality gap. And so, you know, we need to understand that. We need to show some compassion. Um, We need to break down some myths. And there are a lot of things that we definitely need to talk about. So, you know, we thank you all for joining us today. For those that aren't familiar, yesterday there was a black Twitter story. And, you know, that went on for a while. Here's Raina. Hey, Raina. Hey, how are you? <laughs> Take a guess. Okay, <laughs> I'm doing good. I'm doing good. What about yourself? I'm okay. Same as usual. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I heard that you were. Mm. Okay. <laughs> yeah, this um, spring forward, fall back thing caught me by surprise. Mm. So we'll just yeah. leave it at that. Yeah, <laughs> caught me by surprise. You didn't make you didn't make your phone call this morning. Um, well, I don't. I mean, I don't always, but yeah. I mean, I didn't call. <laughs> I'm messing with you. I'm messing with you. So, you know, um, today is the 50th anniversary of Bloody Sunday, yeah. and they've been celebrating you know, or memorializing or however you want to categorize that. Um, they've been talking about it all week. celebration necessarily, but, yeah, I think yeah, it is definitely that's why, a, that's, that, yeah. And that's why I'm, like, correcting myself or memorializing it or however you want to see that. Um, so, yeah, you know, President Obama gave a speech yesterday, and he made some, you know, some, some pretty good points. It was interesting because – you know, some of the Ferguson protesters were there. And they even, you know, spoke up during his speech. And toward the end, he addressed them. You know, what did you think about that, Raina? Um, Honestly, um, I missed a lot of it. Um, I was was doing something else. I was, you know, not paying attention. I kind of shut out from the world yesterday. So I was actually going to get caught up on that a little bit later. So sorry about that. But, okay, um, no, that's okay. <laughs> yeah. You know, sometimes yeah. you just have to check out a little bit, you know. Exactly. Mm-hmm. Exactly. So that's all right. But today, um, huh, 
Al Sharpton is supposed to give the keynote speech today, as opposed okay. to Jesse Jackson. Yeah, exactly. And I'm just trying to figure out, you know, you know what's going on there, because it just seems as though <laughs> the media and you know certain other entities are trying to push Al Sharpton to the front and, you know, make him the de facto leader. And it's, it's, we'll just say I'm a little befuddled or bewildered about that. And I will leave it at that. You know, um, you had any comments about that, Raina? I mean, it doesn't surprise me that they'd be trying to push him out to the front. You know, I mean, there's the sensationalism. There's the fact that he's male, the fact that he's older, the fact that he's, you know, quote unquote, respectable, you know, right. but a lot of it has to do with the spectacle, you know, the spectacle of it all. So. Exactly. Exactly. And unfortunately, you know, and this is something that I've talked about for a while about how sometimes, um, we get caught up in the pop and circumstance and caught up in the cult of personality and it's a number uh, of things. Yeah, yeah. That's that's so. <laughs> I'm just, I'm sorry. It's, it, I'm sorry it's the last. It's just that, um, that, that just hits home so much <laughs> in the secular community this week. So. I just think it's really interesting. So. Right. Right. You see, I'm carefully putting this together, right? And so, oh, yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. It's just so you know the cult of personality. And, you know, we have to go beyond that. We have to look beyond that. And one of the things that I know that we've been stating and, you know, on a number of occasions is that we have to, we need to base these movements on issues and platforms, not on people or organizations. Mm -hmm. It's important that you all understand that. And I know there are quite a few people that had an issue with the way that Ferguson was organized and how they didn't have, you know, specific leaders and basically they considered them all they considered themselves everyone to be a leader and you know uh, it's just you know, if you all go back and look at occupy wall street that was you know um how they set that up as well and it was about an issue and so it's interesting when i see people you know like my girl oprah i still love some oprah and my but for different reasons when she was talking about you know uh, what are they trying to do? They have no leader. And what's happening is they're learning how to work together. And they're putting together, you know, um, you know, different types of plans, six-point, seven-point, 12-point plans, depending on where you are. They're putting together a platform. They're, you know, basically this is turning from 
a protest and they're building it into a movement. It is not a full-fledged movement yet, but we see the direction that they're going in and the fact that it has galvanized people all over this country as well as people, you know, across the pond, you know, in, in many different places. So, you know, it's growing. It's growing into a movement. And that's why I always congratulate and, you know, um, honor those young people and, you know, assist them in any way that I possibly can. But, you know, not just that movement. I'm just saying anything. Because, I mean, even with this so-called secular movement that we're in, I just see people going in circles. So it's just interesting. And, you know, real issues yeah, are I mean, not there's being there's no clear... There's just no clear focus, and these, and it's like everything right now seems to be driven, you know, towards visibility. And visibility is fine to an extent, but I mean, outside of, um, it just seems like it's just, it's just all kind of confused. You know what I mean? Yeah. Like on the one hand, right. they say that they're about, you know, um, separation of church and state issues, and you know, they're not, a pol- you know, the people aren't, they are claiming they're not political organizations, then reaching out to explicitly political organizations, you know right. what I mean? And and, and one of the most right-wing organizations that seems to be against uh, many of the types of issues that they claim to be for, you know, and represent. So it's just, it's just very confusing, you know? And it's, I don't know. I don't know. Like, I feel like some, like, on some level, um, our collective intelligence is being insulted by some of these people. You know? Hello? Yeah, I Hello. heard you. Yes. Yeah, I'm here. Can you hear me? Yeah, I can hear yeah. you. I don't know. For some reason, there was no sound for a second. So. Yeah, yeah, no, I had muted for a second. So, okay. um, yeah. So, yeah, no, I mean, I agree with you. It's like our collective intelligence is definitely being... <laughs> insulted and, you know, and taken for granted. I mean, taken for granted or advantage. You see how I combine them words. But, you know, that's the reason why you have shows like ours in which we address, you know, these issues and bring things that are troubling to the light because it's so much, it's so much happening. And the last thing I want you know, it's for, because the demographics, you know, they're growing. Um, people of color in the secular community and, you know, um, if you will, letting go of some religion, those, those demographics are growing, especially with the younger people. And the last thing I want is for them to come over here and be taken advantage of and be and basically have the same thing happen to them here that happened when they were in religion because it's already setting itself up as a, as a mirror to religion. And I'm not saying everybody, but quite a few of the people that, you know, we actually, you know, uh, interact with or, you know, kind of keep an eye on to see what's happening. And, it's just wow. That's all I can say some days when I think about this community and 
the direction that it's going in. And so, you know, we tell you all about some of the stuff that we know, but we definitely don't tell you all about everything. And there's a reason for that. Um, Sometimes with some of these issues, it's easier to allow it to blow up in its face. And then we bring it to you and we break it down. And we, if you go back and listen to past shows, we have referred to, you know, a lot of these particular issues. And we tell you little things, but if you're not in the know, it's kind of hard to keep up. But, yeah, right now, um, I just feel that, you know, quite a few people are being set up to fail. And I'm not even necessarily talking about, you know, the, the membership, you know, the average member. I'm talking about some of the people in leadership and is is actually going to be hard to watch. And it's just interesting because it doesn't matter what we say. They're not going to listen. But anyway, let's get back to, you know, the high cost of being poor. And that's another thing. You know, I'm sorry, I, I can't walk away from that yet. Um, we had some members of an atheist organization go to CPAC. And, you know, Raina just mentioned that a minute ago. And, again, some of the people that are part of CPAC, the majority of the people, I'm comfortable saying that, are anti-something that we're supposed to be pro. So whether they are anti um, you know, whether they're homophobic, whether they are transphobic, sexist, racist, and a number of other things, I thought we were against those things. But, but they're right. recruiting people who are openly, you know, racist, openly sexist. And so, you know, this is what I don't understand. And this is why we tell you all to ask questions, even in this community. But in addition to all of that, you know, with not only the CPAC people, but also the very, very strong presence of libertarians in this community. And it's quite a few people who consider themselves libertarian, especially in the leadership positions. They don't care about the poor. Nope. And, and you all need to understand this. You know, um, you know, you all need, they do not care about the poor, period. And that's the reason why when people say that they're, you know, libertarians, why... I start asking them specifically about Ayn Rand and the number of things that their platform is built on. And But it all boils down to, you know, they want to get all the toys, they want to take all the toys and, and go away. And this is why you have some people of color who are, you know, um, humanists, why they are not anywhere near this movement. They don't associate with it. They None of that. They've walked away. Some of them were once involved, and some people were never involved, but they saw what was happening. And basically, someone wrote an article, and I have to find it later and post it, about six reasons why there are not more blacks in the atheist community. And one of the one of the points that the author made was you have, you know, the mainstream organizations out here trying to sell people of color atheism or secularism the same way they were trying to sell them Christianity. And so the more and more, you know, the longer you're in this movement and you see some of the issues that are happening, you'll see that. You'll see that because one of the questions that I've posed to 
mainstream organizations on a Twitter chat was, even if you don't want to help anybody outside of this community, why aren't they doing more to help the people in need, the poor people in this community? And we got no response. So they don't even care about the poor people in this community. So that should tell you something, because I remember, you know, for the past couple of years, seeing all of these, you know, status updates from people who were losing their homes, who were losing their jobs, you know, homeless, asking for help, even in this community. And there was no response. None. You know, some of those people did get help. Some of those people did get help from other other people, you know, but not necessarily the organizations. And I just find that, you know, disheartening. And I think it's important for you all to understand, you know, what happened and what is happening and what still happens in this community. And fortunately, you've had a few people that have started up their own little organizations, and they help the homeless. They help, you know, women and children in need. And, you know, but these are some of the smaller ones. I'm looking at the larger ones, you know, that have their war chest of donations. And it's just it's absolutely amazing. But then you have to also look at the leadership of these large organizations. You know, when you live in an 18,000-square-foot home, I don't expect you to understand the needs of someone who lives in a 600-square-foot apartment. I just mm-hmm. don't. You know, and, and it's just interesting. But, you know, hey, you know, we we need to talk about these issues. We need to talk about what's happening. Um, it's just so much going on. And one thing that I will say is something that I've noticed is when they talk about, you know, the protests happening across this country, um, in many cases they neglect to add um, or talk about the, the stories of Native Americans because they're out there protesting too. And Latinos, you know, they're out here protesting with us as well. As a matter of fact, yesterday there was an article talking about how some of the immigrants were marching with, you know, the people on, you know, the Pettus Bridge down in Selma. You know, they joined them because, you know, they deal with a lot of racism as well. And, I mean, you all have seen this. You've seen some tea partiers um, actually busing their own people to go to to the borders to protest, you know, the immigrants coming in, especially with those babies. When those young people were crossing over and coming into the country, they were trying to stop them. And these are, you know, these these were young kids. And so it's just, it's like, wow. (laughs) It's, it's, it's interesting, um, you know, how all of this is coming about. But it's important that we understand what's happening and about the fines and the fees, you know, uh, in Ferguson alone. Each household had an average of three warrants. So three warrants per household for fees and fines that were owed. And if you did not pay, then they put you in jail. I thought debtors' prisons, I thought we no longer had those, right now. Yeah, yeah. Well, apparently we did, and we do all over the country. It's not just Ferguson. Exactly. 
Exactly. And it's happening all over the country. Um, you hear us talking about broken windows, policies of broken windows, policing. Um, you need to pay attention to that. And, you know, we talked about the fines and the fees and how it perpetuates white supremacy. And it keeps, you know, people of color, it keeps them constantly paying because if you don't pay defined by a certain date. In in most places, it doubles. And if you didn't have the original fine, you sure as heck don't have it times two. And then there are fees that are tacked on and these crazy interest rates that are, you know, uh, <laughs> you know, accumulated and calculated on a daily basis. And it's just, you know, one big-ass clusterfuck. That, that's the only way I can can vocalize or, you know, it, it's just it's crazy because it's set up to never allow you out of debt. And then if they do mm-hmm. put you in jail, they come pick you up, then whatever, you know, employment that you may have had, it's a good chance you're going to lose it. So if you don't have a right. job, you can't And not just that, you- but public housing... And that's just that, but public housing, I mean, you know, if you have a, you know, you know, the public housing officials are able to, to, there's no law that protects people from discrimination in public housing if they have a criminal record. Right. So if you're, if you're, if you, you can get public housing with a criminal record, we can say that, but it's very unlikely. And so, and, and it's really up to their discretion. They can decide that no one with a criminal record, no matter what it is, what kind of, you know, minor misdemeanor it might be, you know, and that they can't mm-hmm. have housing or they could, or, or, or they could decide to give it to them, but usually they decide against it. And so someone right. with something as minor as a misdemeanor for jaywalking can be, demi- be denied housing. Exactly. You know? Exactly. Exactly. It's really, and, it's really you know, bad. True. It is, and I used to work for, um, well, I didn't work for, I interned at a housing authority, right? And Mm -hmm. let me tell you, in the particular town where this was located, on Monday morning, they would send, you know, one of their reps down to the police department, and they would sit there and read all of the police reports from the prior week and note which ones of their residents, um, you know, had called the police or had some type of altercation or what have you. And they would write that down, and then they would take it back to the office, and these people would receive letters. And in many cases, they were kicked out. So I'm just letting you guys know this I saw firsthand. Okay, this is something I know firsthand. And so it's just it's ridiculous. Um, even now, the way that it's set up, um, there are a lot of people that are being, you know, pushed off of the welfare rolls and being, you know, moving their Section 8s and a number of issues. Now, you know, what a lot of people don't realize is the money – that they don't have to pay you when they push you off of welfare or push you off of Section 8, that goes back to the state. And, you know, 
the state has the money to assist more people, but it's to their advantage not to, so that they can continue to fund some of their pet projects. And so this is why we tell you, you know, you need to understand the local politics and understand how, you know, some of these things work. And in many cases, if you lose your Section 8, they will not allow you to have Section 8 ever again in, in, you know, sometimes even across the country, but namely that particular state. You're going to have to move, you know, next door to the next state to try to get it. So it's, it's just interesting. I remember about a year ago, I had put on my, I was just putting it on my Facebook wall and Tumblr and Twitter about the different places that were accepting applications for Section 8. I think I may do that again. And this time just turn it into a little note and put that information out there because I understand that people need help, you know, and even if you are receiving some type of financial assistance, it's usually, it's not usually, it's not enough, period. It's just not enough. Mm-hmm. And you have people out here laboring under the delusion that these people are getting re- rich. And, and going back to that Reagan time when he made up the myth of the welfare coin. And, you know, mm-hmm. people believe that. As a matter of fact, it was a welfare fraud bust. Not too long ago, I think it was 30-plus white people who were arrested for welfare fraud. And if you go and you look at the statistics and you look at the information, there are more white people utilizing these programs than blacks. And when we did and our white show, people tend to get more money on, on, on when they're on welfare than black people. So a single mother, a single black mother may get, you know, half as much as a single white mother with the same number of children. Exactly. Exactly. And, you know, in addition to that there, you know, we did a show and, and basically, you know, I think I called it affirmative action and, but I was talking about affirmative action for white people and how a lot of these programs came into existence. Now, welfare and all of that, that was specifically created to help white women, and especially white women whose husbands went away to war. This was created to help supplement their income while their husbands were away fighting, Um, even with Social Security and unemployment. You know, those were created for white people, not people of color. And this is what is happening when you hear these tea partiers and libertarians talking about states' rights. You know, basically what that does is when a federal government passes a law and when they pass the responsibilities and the administration of that law down to the states, it enables the states to discriminate. And so when you hear them talking about states' rights, that's part of, you know, what they're talking about because then the state is able to discriminate against people. Um, Another example is the GI Bill. And when, you know, the, the, the soldiers and, you know, all of the military guys came back from whatever war they were engaged in, they would apply for the GI Bill. And this is how we got all of these suburb enclaves around the city. You know, the GI Bill allowed them to go back to school. Then they had the uh, bill that allowed them, you know, to get um, federal loans. And that's where those enclaves come from, where you see these suburbs 
that are pretty much lily white. And, you know, that was what was happening. You know, the black soldiers were being denied the loans. You know, it was a very, very minute number that, you know, were able to get, you know, the housing loans or even go back to school. So this is how they're able to discriminate. You know, oh, well, you need this, you need that. I mean, for those of you, even in this country, you know, when you went to register to vote for this last election, I have so much faith that you went out and registered. I'm just going to take that for granted right now. But um, even when you went out to, you know, register to vote, in certain states, you know, they have the voter ID laws now, and they have all of these laws that they put in place. North Carolina and Texas didn't even wait for the ink to dry. You know, when the Supreme Court, you know, struck down, you know, Section 5. But even here in Illinois, where I live, um, I went to go register to vote. I was at DMV doing something, getting a new ID. It was time to change it. And I said, well, let me go ahead and register. They gave me such a hard time about it. You need this, you know, piece of paperwork. You need that piece of paperwork. And I'm like, I have a driver's license. You know, you needed all of that for me to get this. And it had changed, and it was just, I was, you know, I shared with you guys how hard it was. And I think that was in January sometimes, so the election wasn't until, you know, several months later. But, you know, I was warning you all. And that's another thing that happens with these fines and fees, especially if they convict someone, especially of a felony, that in many cases they've taken away that person's right to vote. Now, they've changed some of the laws that some of the, you know, um, you know, men and women that have been convicted, they can now vote, but in some cases, not so much. And we talked about how you can go and have your record sealed and appeal for your right to vote. They've changed a lot of the laws, and that's why we encourage you guys to go out and look the information up, and we encourage those of you especially those of you that are criminal justice majors or attorneys, you know, spread the information. Don't don't hold it, you know. And in many cases, all you have to do is, um, you know, file, you know, maybe one or two legal briefs. And then, you know, you have to wait the allotted time. And then the state has a designated amount of time to respond to, you know, the filing. And if they don't, then you go before the judge, and then the judge at that time determines whether or not you can have that record sealed and reinstate your ability to vote. So, you know, do some research. Do some research. You know, the the information is out there. But, you know, let's talk a little bit about this Ferguson thing, about how, (laughs) about how, you know, the Department of Justice is not going to go after, you know, um, Aaron Wilson. I mean, it's just so hard to, to digest, you know, and um, we're just sitting here because I was reading the Justice Department's report on Ferguson, and it just it talks about how, you know, the predominantly white police department and, and, you know, city employees, you know, how they would just, you know, uh, waive offenses of their friends and family and, you know, discriminate in in the form of jobs. And it's just, 
and this is not just Ferguson, it's happening all across the country. Because I also posted an article talking about how the Ferguson Police Department was really just, you know, uh, a collection agency, and that's how it is in many parts of the country. And you know, now we're trying to get you all to understand how they're generating revenue, you know, to to keep these municipalities running, and in essence, to keep you oppressed. And it's important that you all understand what's happening. And it's important that we support these protesters. I mean, I think winter is over here in Chicago, so I I anticipate seeing more and more of more and more people out here protesting, even in this city. And so, you know, I need to send some some more cases of water so that they can have that available. But I'm sitting here and I'm looking at it and looking at the detail. You know, from from Ferguson, and it's nothing but a money-making racket. And it's not just Ferguson. This is happening across the country. You need to open your eyes and pay attention to what's happening where you live because being poor is expensive. If you're already poor and barely making it from day one to two, imagine owing these fines and these fees and not being able to pay it. In some cases, they may come and boot your car. Well, without your car, you may not be able to make it to work. So now you don't have a job, and now they, they're threatening to come and lock you up in jail, and that's going to be extra fees. And if you have a boot on your car, you have to pay them to take the boot off. And if they well, they can your suspend car, your license, too. Exactly. They can, exactly. Your, they, can, they can suspend your license. And, it, and, look, you can't even sit in your car because there was one report out of Ferguson in the, in the, in the report actually, um, where a woman was actually sitting in her backyard, not driving her vehicle, not getting ready to go anywhere, just sitting in her vehicle. She had a suspended license. They arrested her for driving with a suspended license. Exactly. Exactly. And really, (laughs) the charge, the formal charge was driving on a suspended license. (laughs) The actual charge was... (laughs) sitting in a vehicle on a suspended license. <laughs> right. <laughs> you know, how dare you enjoy your car. Okay. <laughs> in, in, you know, in, in, your, in your driveway, you know. Exactly. You know, the people in the house may have been getting on her nerves, and she had to go and sit in the car in order not to punch somebody in the throat. And now oh, she, she, she right. had to take a phone call. You know what I mean? You don't know. <laughs> Right, you know, and she couldn't even sit in her own damn car. Right, right, right. Yeah, you know, I'm making light of it a little bit, you know, because it's Mm -hmm. absurd. It's totally absurd. It's, you know, I mean, even in, in, in different cities, you know, we all talk about the quotas of the police officers when they get to issuing these tickets. And that's what's interesting what's happening in New York, that the police officers in protest of, you know, the protesters and in protest of de Blasio and all of, you know, the policies and oversight and the possible, you know, um, um, citizen oversight, they've been refusing to meet their quotas in ticketing people. Well, crime has not gone up. As a matter of fact, crime has gone down in New York. and. People are happy. And they're basically <laughs> just they're basically just proving the point. You know, that black and brown people in this country are over policed. 
Exactly. Or over police. Exactly. Exactly. And so it's just interesting because, you know, you know, the police um, union and the police officers are doing this out of spite, but it's making everybody quite happy. And so, oh. You know, mm-hmm. it's just, yeah, it's just interesting how all of that is working out. And, you know, I just, I wish all the police officers across the country would go on a strike for writing tickets. You know, maybe we should encourage that. You know, don't write any tickets mm-hmm. in protest. Of uh, you know, public oversight of the police departments. You know, I, I can almost guarantee you crime will go down and people would be much happier. You know, so just go on over and, you know, take a little nap in your police car. So it's just interesting. But, mm-hmm. yeah, you know, right here, uh, it was talking about Belleville, Illinois, which is a little town here. And basically, um, somebody analyzed 175,000 traffic tickets to demonstrate an organized attempt to harass black drivers from East St. Louis, you know, what we call East Boogie, but East St. Louis. And when the police officers were confronted with the evidence or the police department, the chief, um, in a 60-minute follow-up, they didn't want to accept the truth. They ignored it. They ignored the fact that, yeah, that it showed that black and brown people were, you know, deliberately targeted. And so that's why when you hear people talking about driving while black, and this has been going on, and we've been protesting this for decades. This is nothing new. And if you go back and you read some of the writings of James Baldwin, you know, he, he also talked about how expensive it is to be black in this country. And for some of the, you know, black celebrities, you know, some of them have left the United States and went to live in Europe and, you know, other places as well. So that's one of the reasons why, as a matter of fact, I posted an article about the Great Migration and why a lot of people don't necessarily understand why black people in America don't just leave. And so you have people in this country that are Garveyites, if you will, and they're talking about, you know, going back to Africa and all of that. And one of the issues that I have personally is my forefathers and foremothers, you know, they created this country. They created the wealth. If it was not for, you know, slavery, this country would not be as wealthy as it is. These these industries, these some of these corporations would not be in existence without you know, that money. And this is why we tell people to go back and do some research because quite a few insurance companies, you know, benefited from slavery. And a lot of the universities, especially the Ivy League universities, they were built by slaves. And, you know, even Washington, D.C., you know, built by slaves. And so it's it's important that you all understand the history and huh, and see what you know what was happening, and so you know this if you do you all get a, did you get a chance to read that d o j report Raina? yeah, I did I mean, I posted it on your wall mm-hmm. right, right, right right, right, so yeah, what was the one thing that stood out the most for you? um, I don't think that any one thing really stood out i think I don't think that any of it was particularly surprising, you know what I mean. It was, right. I mean, not not as a black person, you know what I mean? It's almost like black people, 
it's almost like when people like in this country got started getting um started getting uh becoming aware of the um the US spying apparatus, right? The US uh, surveillance apparatus in this country. Black people were not surprised. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? Black people weren't even phased because this is this is like you know, surveillance in, in our communities is a way of life. You know what I mean? It's routine. Exactly. You know, exactly. so it, it wasn't it wasn't a shock to our system. You know, it for a lot of us. I mean, of course, we're outraged by it, like in a, in a sense in the sense that we don't believe that it should expand. You know what I mean? Right. The fact that the gov- but we weren't surprised by the fact that our government was doing this because our government has done this and worse. You know, exactly. so I mean, it's just it's the same way that I wasn't really surprised, you know, by by learning about just how expensive the U.S. buy apparatus is, and and of course is we only know like probably the uh, the surface level, <laughs> you know right. what I mean? But mm-hmm. um, you know, just like I wasn't surprised about that, I'm I'm not surprised by any of this. You know, they were talking about um, I think I was. I think I was just um, saddened um, by one of the stories because I do remember reading about this child who was um, bitten by a police dog, and um, according to according to the police, he they found him in a crawl space or something and he wouldn't get out, and they sent the dog in after him, and um, they you know they claimed that the dog just bit him or whatever, but they but the child said that he was actually in the basement of this house. So he and his friends had skipped school, which is something a lot of us have done. You know what I mean? Raise your hand if you've never, ever skipped school a day in your life. Right. (laughs) But, um, (laughs) you know, but, um, they, they skipped school and they, they did what kids do, you know, kids, you know, they, they do little things, you know, nothing really troublesome. They were trespassing, you know, they were in an abandoned house, but the, um, the child was in the basement and he didn't hear the police. At least he, at least he claimed he didn't hear the police. But in any case, the dog actually bit him on the ankle and then was going to go for his neck. And the child was able to get his arm in between the dog and his neck. So um, there was that story. And the police ended up charging the children with theft, even though this was an abandoned property. So at, at best, um, you know, the, or, or at best the charge should have been um, trespassing. You know what I mean? But it's exactly. it's the overcharging. I mean, no one's surprised by the overcharging or whatever. But, you know, the police dogs were only ever used or at least only ever recorded to be used on black people. Um, then there was another instance of, or, or they were talking about all of the um, the tasing, basically, that was being done. And they were talking about one incident where a man simply refused to be searched by a police officer and the police officer was officer was really angry about this and grabbed the man by his belt, tased him, and then while he was on the ground, tased him a second time. And the police officer claimed that the man was trying to get up because, you know, black people, we just you know, we're just so strong and superhuman that we cannot we cannot be, you know, uh, subdued by by one mere tasing. You know, you have to tase us several times to keep us down. So this gentleman who was tased and, and writhing in pain on the ground supposedly was trying to stand up, according to this police officer. Unfortunately for him, 
um, his the camera on his cruiser was recording the entire situation and didn't show that the man was trying to get up. So, you know, but that doesn't surprise me, you know, us black people because we know that police um, use an excessive amount of force when it comes to people of color. I mean, it's just, it's ridiculous. I mean, you know, some of us remember that incident from several years ago where the police officers had incurred, um, uh, had happened upon a, a young black boy holding a puppy and somehow, right. you know, and somehow they ended up what they ended up with the, with like a knee on his neck or something along those lines. I mean, the poor child was, you know, he was brutalized by the police exactly. holding a puppy of all things. You know, it was just ridiculous. Exactly, and ridiculous. you know, yeah, it is, and. It happens across the country, and there have been reports of some police officers making comments like, you got to get them when they're young. You know, you have Mm -hmm. to start making them afraid of the police when they're young, and we've seen incidents um, happening like that, and you feel helpless. You feel like there's nothing that you can say or do, And, and the system is stacked. You know, in the quote from James Baldwin, you know, I just want to make sure I quote it properly. It says, anyone who has ever struggled with poverty knows how extremely expensive it is to be poor. And so what he was referring to, um, he was referring to poor people being overcharged for inferior goods. And, you know, we have these food deserts in, in most major cities. And when a store does, you know, come into the neighborhood, you know, usually the goods are inferior. You know, you look at the vegetable and the fruit, and it looks like it's already, you know, starting to to rot away. And they still want to charge you top price for these things. You look at the meat. You know, some people poke holes in a plastic to smell it because, you know, they've experienced buying that meat, and when they get home, it's is spoiled, and they try to bring it back, and, and the stores don't want to reimburse them. And so... We have to look at it, and, you know, this starts to take a toll on you, you know, emotionally, psychologically, physically, and it's it's just, wow. When we talk about these issues, and the reason why it affects me is because, you know, I've been affected by it in some way or the other, whether it was a family member, whether it was me or, you know, a friend or, you know, or a neighbor, and after a while, it does take a toll on you. You know, the constant worry over not having enough, you know, to mm-hmm. feed your children or yourself or 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 basically being in a position that you're too scared to go to the doctor or the emergency room because you can't pay that bill. And, you know, especially if you're trying to build your credit up. And then also, even if you did go to the hospital and they gave you a prescription, where's the money coming from? Because these programs they have out now for, you know, a $4 prescription at, you know, at, at Walmart or Walgreens or one of them, that's new. That used to not be the case. Medicine is expensive. And then if you have to do a follow-up, you know, of course, in many cases, it's a copay. And if you have no insurance, some of these offices demand the money up front. They don't necessarily want to bill you. So... You know, we have to look at all of that and 
and see what's happening because, you know, poverty is like a slap in the face. And I just believe that it contributes to a lot of the issues that we have. I don't think that it's a mistake that quite a few of us are walking around with high blood pressure. And so, you know, some of the issues down in Ferguson, you know, what was happening is even with um, walking, walking down the street, Walking down the street can get you a ticket. And Actually, they were saying they were saying something like the um, so black and white people, okay, um, don't don't jaywalk in different at different rates, okay. Like there's not there's no there's no statistic in the country that shows that there that black people jaywalk more frequently than white people. But the number of tickets that were being given were like five right. times that of white people. You know what I mean? Like black right. and white people don't speed differentially. Like we, we pretty much speed at the same rate. You know what I mean? But black people exactly. get tickets more often for speeding. You know what I mean? So it's, it's, there's a very clear, you know, case of, of a pattern of racial discrimination on behalf of law enforcement um, entities in the state of, of Missouri. Well, really, I mean, really not just in the state of Missouri, but all across the United States. And they were saying that there are similar rates of, of um, ticketing in New York City, or at least there were until, until the police officers decided to strike. But <laughs> Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. That's true. And, you know, in Ferguson, it's called Manner of Walking Along Highway. And 95% of the charges of manner of walking along the highway or manner of walking along roadway, forgive me, it was those tickets were assigned to black people, 95%. Mm-hmm. And, you know, and, and, and talking about how the police officers would stalk them and stop them, and they'd say, hey, what's your name? Got any warrants? Why are you strolling through the neighborhood? Come here, you look suspicious. Right. You know, just giving people a hard time. And, you know, many people believe that is what, you know, that's what initiated the confrontation between Michael Brown and Darren exactly. Wilson. Now, think about that for a second. Think about that. At the time that that policeman um, pulled Michael Brown over, the state even had to admit that the officer did not have any idea about the confrontation that had happened at the convenience store. So at that mm-hmm. point, and that wasn't even a, that wasn't even a well-traveled roadway from the reports that are that are given. That 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 roadway was um, not a main drag, um, mm-hmm. and not quite a side street, but not the most well-traveled street in in that area. So it wasn't as though they were really impeding traffic at that time. You know what I mean? Not to say that, right. you know, not to say that it's not, you know, like an officer can't pull them over, but usually officers are given, it's sort of up to officer's discretion, you know what I mean, to charge someone mm-hmm. or, or to, to give a ticket to someone for, for jaywalking. And a lot of times officers let it go, particularly when right. they're not, you know, causing any, um, any danger to themselves or, or to drivers or, or whoever. You know, so just think about that. I mean, it's it's this whole situation 
where we we're mm-hmm. now seeing that there's evidence that there's there's discrimination in jaywalking tickets. You know what I mean? That maybe Mike exactly. Brown might have might still be alive. He might have his life if he'd not been harassed by Darren right, exactly. Right, and see, the manner of walking laws are extremely similar to the stop and frisk. And then mm-hmm. there's another one called the jump out, and I just started learning about that, you know, since Ferguson. But, you know, it, the, you know, the Justice Department report shows that, especially in Ferguson and in a number of cities, that the municipal court can sentence a violator up to three months in jail and a fine up to $1,000 or both. This is how they're making money and keeping mm-hmm. poor people poor or keeping them poorer than they normally would be. And it, it's just this is happening across the country, and this is why you have people out here protesting stop and frisk, you, you know, protesting this manner of walking and the jump outs. Don't they do that in D.C., Raina? Um, I believe that they do, but they've, they've started to um, before. Uh, I've been reading about how there's, um, a push to change a lot of these things. I think they they have actually stopped the stop and frisk, or they or they've or so they they've said they they've instituted a policy against stop and frisk, um, and they've also instituted a policy against civil um, civil asset forfeiture, which is a good thing. right. So yeah, this is very and for very those of you that don't know, civil asset asset forfeiture is basically. Um, when a police officer arrests you for uh, for a crime, and um, say you're in possession of um, some kind of you know uh, piece of property that they don't believe you obtained illegally, or illegally rather that you obtained illegally, um, the police officers can basically seize it and put you in a position where you then have to prove that you obtained that item legally in order to um, to get it back. And, um, you know, it's, it's just, it's, you know, and it's a hassle to get it back, you know, so, and, and, you know, some, some cities and, um, uh, some, you know, municipalities, you know, have, have, um, have engaged, have abused this essentially. I mean, to the point where, um, Eric Holder, um, basically, uh, had to make a statement on civil asset forfeiture and, and how it's being misused and, um, trying to investigate ways that DOJ can use its authority to um, put the kibosh on this, you know? But, um, right. but yeah, I mean, some, some, some states are, are doing this, you know, um, so often, I mean, it's, it's like to the tune of hundreds of thousands into millions, you know, I mm-hmm. mean, it's a, it's a huge revenue stream. And, um, and, you know, and the, and this is, but this is how a lot of, them are making up that difference, you know, in terms of tax revenue, because a lot of these places have reduced their um, the taxes that they, um, you know, that they're taking in for citizens. You know, they, you know, they'll have an election and someone will say, okay, no new taxes, you know. But think where, right. but think of where that has to come out of, you know, mm-hmm. when um, when a state or or um, you know city government decides that it's going to reduce corporate taxes on people. Right. That has to come from somewhere. That that missed revenue has to come from somewhere. And it what it's what they where it's coming from is poor people. In in ways right. of fines and, you know, their assets 
what little assets they may have. You know, this is where it's coming from. Right. And it's important. It really is. And, you know, in Ferguson, they created a buddy system. And they would text each other when they made it to school or made it to the store or when they returned home to let them know that they were safe because they were afraid of the harassment of the police. And they said it got particularly worse after the Mike Brown incident. And so, you know, yeah, you know, the buddy system, come on, just walk to the store. And so, you know, one guy was talking about how he would charge people $5 in gas money so that he can drive his truck, drive a truck full of them to the store to get their stuff and to make it back home safely because they were too afraid to walk down the street. Right. Yeah. And I think that's horrible. That is horrible. And so, like we're saying, it's not just Ferguson. You know, it's, it's happening all over the place, you know, um, all across the country. Right here it says in Louisiana and Washington State, those convicted of a crime are ordered to pay court in a processing fee that can add up to hundreds or thousands of dollars. In Washington State, the minimum fee for a felony conviction can add up to $800, and in 2004, they averaged nearly $1,400. And poor defendants often wind up indebted and put into a payment plan where interest accrues. Like I said, you know, they they calculate that interest daily, and, you know, it, it makes it harder for them to be able to pay. And when they don't pay, they can go back to prison or go back to jail. And so it's just it's really interesting. Yeah, you know, and right here they gave a case about DeKalb County, you know, Georgia, which is Decatur, Georgia. I used to live there. But this young man was talking about he was put on probation for 30 days, and during that time he had to pay more than $800 in fines and fees. And basically he was saying that, you know, he joined with a bunch of other people and they have a class action suit um, against the city, you know, um, you know, basically charging them with, to a certain degree, collusion, because that's what it is. And so right. it's just it's amazing. You know, you all need to go out in your respective states and cities and see how these municipalities are making money. And, you know, and it's, it's so interesting because we talk about these issues. And, you know, I've posted a number of articles in which, you know, they talked about how white people still don't believe black people when we tell them how hard it is to be black. Mm-hmm. And I think that's unfortunate, you know, especially with some of our, you know, allies out there, and they don't believe us. They don't believe mm-hmm. us when we say it. But if the words come out of the mouth of a white person, then they'll believe it. Which is why, you know, you have some people in this community that have problems with people like Tim Wise because he's taking, you know, information or, you know, appropriating or co-opting, you know, information that, you know, a lot of black men and women have been putting out here for years, but he's making a living off of it. Whereas, you know, the majority of the people of color that have talked about these issues, they remained in poverty or right at it, or, or you know, people just plain and simply didn't believe them. And so it's just, just it's, it's wild. And when you talk about the inequality gap, you know, especially the inequality gap between whites and blacks, and, you know, we did a show on that, and I was talking about homesteading. And, yeah, that was the same show when I was talking about affirmative action. 
and how, you know, white people were able to get ahead. You know, a lot of the land, you know, they, they'll say, well, you know, my ancestors worked hard. Well, no, they did. They, they had slaves that worked hard. And they even had a system, you know, worked out as to how to get more work out of the slaves. And in many cases, they were given the property. They were given monies. I mean, a lot of people do not know that when the slaves were emancipated, that the federal government paid reparations to the white slave owners. And they mm-hmm. paid them, you know, it was over a million dollars in reparations that they paid the white slave owners who lost their property. Right. And, you know, look it up. Fact check me. Fact check me. And, but they were paid. So it's just, it's amazing. It's amazing um, how all of this, you know, has come about. But that's one of the reasons why, you know, some people are saying that they don't want to necessarily leave this country because, you know, our our forefathers and foremothers, we, we built this country. And it's sustained well, by I the don't want to leave this. I don't want to leave this country because, I mean, I don't, I don't want to leave this country because I don't really see what leaving this country would do. You know what I mean? Exactly. Because there's really exact, there's really no place where you can go where you'll be able to escape white supremacy and having to deal with these kinds of issues around racism and, you know, exactly. and discrimination. There's just no place that you can go. So Exactly. No, and I agree with you. You know, I definitely agree with you. But I do recommend that people at least leave this country at least once on a vacation or what have you or, you know, whether oh, yeah, you do yeah, yeah, that's, that's different. That's yeah. living someplace else because you think you're escaping the um, racism and discrimination of the United States is a different, is a different animal, though, than exactly. taking a trip outside the country. Exactly. Yeah. So, yeah, now that's much different. But, you know, there are some people that have relocated to other countries that have left the United States. And in some cases, you know, they came back because <laughs> they were like, no, they'd rather deal with, you know, what they know was a little bit more familiar. But, you know, one thing that I do want you all to think about, you know, cause, yeah, we're talking about poor, being poor, and we're talking about poverty and how in many cases, you know, it's contrived you know, with these court fees and fines, you know, and it's to create revenue. And interestingly enough, if you go to, you know, quite a few of these majority black cities, you'll see that the government workers are majority white. There's a reason for that, you know, and this is why we talk about the perpetuation of white supremacy. And so you need to pay attention. But one other thing that I want you all to think about with all of these fines and fees and the fear that's generated is it's about social control. You know, and it it helps them to create these policies. So when you hear us talking about, um, you know, white supremacy, you know, we are talking, you know, about the policies and the laws that have been put in place. And it creates... All of these different layers, that's why you hear us talking about peeling an onion one layer at a time to see what's happening. And what this does, it allows the courts to, you know, basically turn, you know, a a misdemeanor traffic ticket into a felony offense. You know, and, and just go look it up. It's happening all across this country, and it's about control. 
and it's about controlling poor people. There were some articles that came out um, a few weeks ago, I believe, or maybe a month ago. It turns out to be all blur after a while. And they were talking about why the police department was created even in the first place. And, you know, when they say protect and serve, they they really mean rich people. (laughs) And so we need for you to understand that, you know, just like management at any corporation, manage, I mean, I'm sorry, HR, you know, human resources at any corporation, they're there to protect management. But their main focus is to protect the company. Right. And so it's just interesting because, I mean, even in some of these corporations, you know, you have people working under conditions that are just not fair and not receiving, you know, the same rates of pay. And this is why some people are, you know, they refuse to go to HR. They refuse to go to the Labor um, Relations Board, you know, the ELR that most universities have. And 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 they are reluctant to file an EEOC suit for discrimination because at the end of the day, you're still going to be the one that gets fired. Whereas in many cases, if it's a white person, they either, you know, get moved to another department or is brushed off or they get promoted up and out the way. Mm-hmm. And so it's, it's, it's like... You're damned if you do, and you're damned if you don't, and it's unfortunate. It's very unfortunate, and again, you know, <laughs> we we want you all to understand and to go out and do your research and to see what's happening. And like I said, fact check us, fact check us, especially about you know the part where I told you all how the slave owners were given money, you know, uh, because they were losing their slaves losing their ability to to make a living, if you will. So, you know, look that up. Look that up. Maybe we'll do a show on that, right now. Because I think that's, yeah, that's information that people need to know. And to kind of give you all a heads up, for next week's show, we're going to talk about the N-word. And we're going to talk about the history of the N-word. And what's interesting is, you know, on, you know, one particular podcast, you know, um, a white podcast from somebody in a secular community, they were discussing the N-word with um, some people of color from this community. And basically, they wanted to know why they couldn't say it. And Raina and I were on the And so it was one of the callers, actually. It was one of the callers, callers. not the, yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah, not the and, you know, our question is, why would you want to say it? Mm-hmm. Why would you want to say that word? So we're going to talk about the N-word, you know, next week. So be prepared for that. The week after that, we're going to talk about Jim Crow. And let me tell you the books that this is based on. For the N-word next week, it's about, um, you know, the career of the word, the N-word. And this book was written by Randall Kennedy. So you may want to go look that up. Um, It's not called the N-word. It's actually the N-word. I'm just going to say it, nigger. Nigger, and it's written by Randall Kennedy. So we're going to be, you know, talking about that. And the week after that, we'll be talking about Jim Crow. And this book is called The Strange Career of Jim Crow. And this was written by C. Van Woodward. And again, The Strange Career of Jim Crow, C. Van Woodward. So that's second show after that 
And then um, maybe we should do a show on reparations. I think it would be oh, interesting. We did one on that already. Well, I'm talking mm-hmm. about coming from the perspective. From what other about perspective? How, about how um, the white slave owners were given money oh. when when the slaves were um, emancipated. Oh, okay. Okay. Yeah, okay. yeah, just add some balance to it. So you, you know, I mean, that's showing... not really adding balance to it. It's just a different. <laughs> it's just it's just adding more, more context. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Adding more context to it. So, um, I think it's important for us, you know, to kind of let people understand and see how this system has been working. So, yeah, yes, this 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 has been really interesting. And what's ironic is the judge that was imposing all of those fees in Ferguson, mm-hmm. he's in debt to the yeah. IRS. Well, yeah. over a hundred twenty thousand dollars. Right. Yeah. And it's just it's it's amazing. You know, there's an article talking about the fifteen most. Um, unbelievable or 15 most outrageous examples of police misconduct, you know, that the Department of Justice, um, you know, outlined. And, you know, if you all get a chance to read that, you know, I'll put, I'll post it. But it's just, it's amazing. You know, some police officers were um, blasted about some, you know, racist emails. A couple of them resigned. A couple of them are, you know, on administrative leave, I'm assuming, with pay. And so they're talking about one report here, how the Ferguson police officers handcuffed and held a man without reasonable suspicion while looking for another man. And the handcuffed man was never charged with a crime. You know, it talked about how Ferguson police officers often detain suspects without reasonable suspicion to run checks for warrants, a significant source of revenue for the municipality, right? Um, How one of the police officers jailed several young black men for disorderly conduct after he claimed to have smelled marijuana, despite the fact that an investigation of the car did not produce marijuana or any other contraband. And they arrested the guy for refusing arrest, and that man had, you know, committed no other crime, and he lost his job as a direct result of the arrest. And mm-hmm. so, yeah, you know. Yeah, no, I'm sorry. That I'm sorry. That five times uh, thing that I said earlier that had nothing to do with the jaywalking. I think that had to do with um with car with with searches of of vehicles that they were saying that like black people are five times more likely to have their cars searched. But um, on average, I think they said that only like 26% of searches of black people um, end up, you know, uh, yielding contraband when they were saying like, you know, far more searches of um, white people's vehicles. Um, Usually um, they are a lot more times they end up finding something, you know, finding drugs or weapons or what have you. Right. Right. And it's just, it's amazing because, I mean, if you go and you look at the studies, you know, far more white people, um, you know, engage in, you know, substance or abuse um, than black people. And, but yet we're jailed for it. 
So it's it's just, you know, that's why we encourage you guys to go out here and read and to understand. In Ferguson, the police tasered a man who bit an EMT while having a diabetic seizure. So <laughs> it, it's just, it's, it's, it's outrageous. Um, you know, wow. You know, you have to go and read some of these emails. You know, an email that they had in November saying that President Obama would not be president for very long because what black man holds a steady job for four years. Yeah. And yeah, so, yeah, yeah, exactly. And so go back and go out and or read look, this. Look, and then look, and then not only did he hold it for four years, he's held it for eight years. Uh-huh. <laughs> and not only that, he took less vacation time. They don't want him to take any vacation time. They're trying to give him a stroke. That's what's happening. Mm-hmm. But, um, yeah, you know, but it's it's just interesting. You know, they arrested a man who was trying to help his girlfriend, and his girlfriend had been injured in a car accident and was bleeding profusely, and they arrested him. And so it's just, it's amazing. It's amazing. Look at what's happening in this country. You know, because I remember when President Obama was running, this was before he was elected the first time. And, you know, um, my old hairstylist, she was talking about how she thought racism would go away under Obama. And I told her, are you serious? And so she went home and consulted her husband. And so then when I came back the next week, she was like, it was going to help most of it go away. And I'm like, are you serious? And she was like, yes. And I said, it's going to get worse. It's going to get more pronounced. And that is what has happened. Because, you know, <laughs> I mean, I've, I've worked corporate America for so long. And I know firsthand what happens when a person of color in particular, a black person, you know, has a power, a position of power over, you know, a certain number of whites. And and it turns into a mutiny in in most cases. And so, you know, I've seen it firsthand. And so, guys, go out there and read this DOJ report. Um, Right now they're threatening to disband the Ferguson Police Department. And I really feel that they should. They should disband it. Yeah. But not only Ferguson, you know, they need to look at this, you know, the, the county police. They need to look at the state police in Missouri and not only Missouri, just across this country. You know, again, we've talked about the system and how it needs to be deconstructed and rebuilt. And mm-hmm. there are some people that are saying that it can never happen, that it won't ever happen. I mean, do you believe that? We will see any type of justice, Brenda. Um, justice in terms of of changing the system. I don't know. I feel like it's very hard for me to believe. I feel like anything that we're going to see is going to be sort of short term, and then what we'll see is what we've what we've seen in the past, what segregation uh, integration did. Right? It, it'll be it'll be less visible. It'll be it'll be more sort of subtle. And it'll be more difficult to articulate what's happening, you know. It's um, right, you know, because because a lot of what what's happened now is that we're just locking black people up. Exactly, just locking them up. We're just we're just putting them away. 
Exactly. Exactly. Instead of dealing fundamentally with with the problems of our society, you know, we're 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 treating black people and and other and other minorities as problems to just be, you know, put on a shelf, you know, and you know to rot somewhere, you know. Exactly. And uh, and that's just sad. Yeah, it is. It's very sad and. You know, there are a lot of things that need to be, you know, addressed. And when we had Dr. Perry on the show, we talked about how when the New Deal was passed and implemented, you know, in this country, how before the New Deal was passed, basically the ratio was one-to-one, one unemployed white person to one unemployed black person. But after the New Deal was passed and... You know, he was only able to pass, you know, that bill was only able to pass with cooperation from both parties. And some compromises had to be made. And then it was at that time that it turned into a two-to-one ratio, two unemployed black people to one unemployed white person. And it's been that way ever since. And so this is why we tell you all to go back and look at, you know, what's happening in the history and a fact check this. Because, you know, chronic unemployment will wear anybody down. You know, you know, chronic poverty, chronic, you know, abuse. I mean, it's it's just, wow. You know, this is why we're telling you guys that, you know, it's important that you understand what's happening, and especially what happened within, you know, really the past eight years about when the economy was tanking. It's still tanking, but, you know, not as badly as it was in 2007, eight. But, you know, people were desperately looking for income. You know, that you, a lot of the people who were once, you know, donors, you know, whether it was to the food bank or to different charities or to the church, you know, because people were losing their jobs and, and losing, you know, just a lot more than just their jobs, but in some cases their families, they were turning to the same food banks and to the church for help. You know, we saw more incidents of, you know, murder-suicide happening, you know. And, you know, I remember when I lived in Atlanta, and this was like 2000, 2001, we had, you know, stockbrokers and hedge fund managers jumping out of the windows and off the roofs of buildings. Because remember, we had that um, that bubble, that stock bubble that burst in 2000, 2001, and those were tech stocks, you know. Mm-hmm. And what a lot of people didn't seem to understand, and this is something that I've explained to people, most tech companies run in the red. That are very, there are very few that run in the black that are profitable, and they were not designed necessarily to be profitable. But you have to understand that business model to, to kind of get a you know, better understanding of it. But um, just understand what's happening around you. And, you know, show some compassion and some understanding, you know, to the people that are around you. Because, you know, being poor in this country is no joke. Not at all. And that's one of the things that we, you know, we tell the secular community in general. Because, you know, they always want to ask about diversity. They always want to ask about how to appeal to communities of color and just a number of things, you know, in in their attempts to recruit and, and, and all of that. 
and I tell them, you know, yes, science and math, those are absolutely fantastic, wonderful. You know, the technology especially, you know, it's helped a lot of us, you know, the medicine, you know, again, you know, with with me, you know, it's helping to keep me, you know, functional and alive. And those things are wonderful. But if you're worried about how you're going to pay your rent, how are you going to pay, you know, school to an end? And once it ends, it's going to come back into, you know, the school year. How are they going to pay those fees? Because I remember when I was in grade school, we just, you know, my mom go and sign up and then I'd go to school. Now kids have to pay fees. And, you know, when I was younger, I'm not sure if my mother would have been able to pay the fees, you know, if there was an additional fee. Um, you know, when you start to And not just that, but they got to pay the fees. And if you don't, and if your child doesn't go to school, then you've, then you've got a whole nother set of problems to deal with. Your child is now in the school to prison pipeline and you now have to deal with fines and, and, you know, possible jail time, maybe even the loss of your children. You know what I mean? And it's, and and it becomes a a cycle that you can't, that you can't escape. Yeah, exactly. It's a vicious, vicious cycle. And this is, you know, one of the things that we've been, you know, trying to explain, you know, because, you know, I'm just looking at the situation. And a lot of people don't realize that the breakfast program that you see in these schools, those were instituted because of the Black Panthers. And, you know, some of the programs that they were implementing during the the Black Power Movement. And, you know, it's all this propaganda about, you know, the Black Panthers being, you know, a bad organization or, you know, or gang or all that. And that's not true. That's not true. They did a lot of good. You know, they had triage programs, you know, checking people for blood pressure, teaching people how to defend themselves. You know, they were policing their own community. That's what it is, Raina, for the third show. Let's talk about community policing. And um, because I know one time when I posted an article in one of the groups and they were talking about, you know, how blacks need to go back to policing their own communities. So, yeah, that'll be the third show. Don't let me forget, you know, you know, I'll forget. So, yeah, community policing. But, um, you know, with some of these children, breakfast and lunch that are served at school that are subsidized or free, in many cases, that those are the only meals that they get in some cases. Mm-hmm. And it's, it's just unfortunate because I know in some school districts, um, when kids, you know, leave school for the day, for some of the kids, they're able to take, you know, like a bag, you know, lunch or a bag meal home with them. You know, and so that should be implemented across the board. I mean, even with some of these churches and some of these secular orgs that claim that they're going to be doing community outreach, these are things that we need to think about. Because, you know, people want to implement, you know, these different programs, you know, a math program, a science program, you know, a music program, an art program after school for the kids. But, you know, as I've said it before, if they're hungry, or if they're worried about what, you know, what's going to happen when they get home, and especially with some of these kids, the older kids have to go pick up their younger brothers and sisters from another school, you know, and and, and get home. And, and, you know, and there's no telling what they're dealing with, you know, when they get home. So we need to understand, you know, 
what's happening. Because even with these programs, there is a social justice aspect of it that needs to be examined, but also implemented. So, you know, you know, so when you hear us talking about this, you know, we're just asking people to look at the bigger picture. Because I know with some of the programs here in Chicago, you know, uh, they collect, like, you know, winter coats and gloves and socks and things like that. So when the kids come into these programs, if they see that the kid is not wearing an adequate jacket, they'll give them a jacket. Or if the kid doesn't have gloves or a hat, they'll give them some gloves and a hat because they understand that there sometimes are extenuating needs. And, and so we have to be conscientious of that. We have to be conscientious of that. And so, you know, it's expensive. And, you know, it's a drag, you know, being, you know, poor. And, you know, again, with all of the stereotypes and the myths that are out there, you know, you have some people saying, you know, they give up. There are a lot of people out here giving up. And, you know, we have to encourage them. You know, a smile is free. What is it going to hurt to smile to some, smile at somebody or to encourage them? You know, nothing, it costs nothing. And that's one of the things that I find bewildering, you know, even in this secular community. And it's just interesting because you have certain people who are, you know, trying to or, or they're so desperate to be viewed as entitled. And, (laughs) you know, I think I'm going to leave that alone. But you need to pay attention to what's happening in this community. And you need to pay attention to the words that are coming out of the mouths of people in this community. But you also need to pay attention to what they're not saying. And I think that's even more important. You have to learn how to read in between the lines, get more engaged, and, and, and understand the business of the secular community. Because we have people out here, and they're always talking about the business of the church and how many billions and trillions of dollars that have passed through the fingers of, you know, religious leaders. Pay attention to the secular community. Pay attention. There's a reason why I'm saying this. You need to pay attention to what's happening. You need to listen to what they're saying to you. You need to understand the nuances. You need to pay attention. Because a lot of that same activity is happening over here. And you have a lot of people turning a blind eye to it. But you have a lot of people trying to join the ranks. And with you know, I've been extremely disappointed in some people because it's just about the money and that's all they care about. Mm-hmm. And they don't care if they have to throw under the bus to get the money. You all need to pay attention to see because, see, this is still in its infancy and we can stop a lot of this now. But in addition to this, we have the opportunity to create programs that are long-term and ineffective. And so that's why, you know, I'm looking at this community and there are, you know, quite a few, you know, um, people that are poor in this community. 
and we need to help them. And, you know, again, if they're not helping the people in their own community, you know they don't care about anybody else. So when you hear people calling themselves libertarians or conservative Republicans, and then even in some cases, you know, Democrats, you know, you got the blue dogs out there. You need to pay attention. Pay attention. That's all I can say. Because the majority of them do not care about anybody but themselves. And it's been demonstrated. So, <laughs> you know, don't be fooled. So, yeah, Raina, you know, there's, you know, anything else that you wanted to add to this? Um, no, I'm fine. <laughs> <laughs> so, you know, again... You know, um, broken windows policing. We've talked about that on this show, but, um, you know, maybe we can talk about it a little bit more because I know some people are like, well, they're talking about this, but I'm not quite sure, you know, what they're, you know, what they mean by, you know, some of these things. And basically, with broken window policing, you know, in, in many cases, <laughs> These are arbitrary laws that are, you know, somewhat made up at the time. You know, um, you know, you can be fined for spitting on the ground. You can be fined for, you know, uh, jaywalking. And this was one of the issues that were brought up in New York when they were, you know, protesting the stop and frisk. And you know the broken window policing issue was brought it was, up. It was what started. It was what initiated the confrontation with Eric Garner that caused him to lose his life. Exactly, so. because they suspected that he was, you know, selling, you know, single cigarettes. And so, you know, <laughs> broken windows policing is broken, and you know, is is racist and is classist. And you need to go and you need to look this information up because it, it it affects you. And it affects people that you love and people that you care about. So it's important for you to understand, you know, what's happening. And, you know, it, it's, it's supposedly in place to maintain order, you know, and it encourages cops to in, in, enforce this so-called quality of life, you know, and... You all need to pay attention to what's happening because this, you know, the origins of it, it really is racist and classist. And so, you know, go out, do some research on it and and see how, you know, this, you know, came about. The broken windows theory was, you know, first articulated. I'm going to read from this article here. It was first articulated in a 1982 Atlantic article by George L. Kelling and James Q. Wilson, and they argued that disorder and crime are usually inextricably linked in a kind of developmental sequence. And basically it's just saying that the idea is rooted in the work of mid-century political scientists named Edward Banfield. And basically they were trying to refute the main tenet of modern liberalism and that the idea that the state should take an active role in improving the lives of its most vulnerable residents, and they contended that state intervention could only make things worse. 
So go and, and look that up. And I haven't read, you know, his book, but he has two books, The Unheavenly City, and, and it's a revised version as well. And it addresses the so-called urban crisis, high crime rates, riots, white flight, liberalism was to blame, he argued, or at least the very least, liberal policies would never help fix the crisis. And you hear that same thing even now. And so, you know, um, you need to pay attention. Right here it talks about the Great Society initiatives of the Johnson era and how it had served to widen class divisions and to encourage members of the lower class to blame others for their plight, thus fostering feelings of resentment and entitlement. So, you know, I'm saying this, you know, I want you all to hear the little buzzwords in there. And I also want you all to think about the political climate that we're in today. So you'll hear people talking about entitlement. You'll hear people talking about this wealth inequality gap. And there are some in the secular community that deny that there is a wealth inequality gap. And so you need to pay attention, guys. That's all I can say because, you know, these people are putting it in your face. And, you know, we're seeing it and we're seeing what's happening, but not only in the secular community, but just the community at large. And since, you know, we're on, you know, the topic of the community, um, I read an article um, the other day, and it was talking about, you know, Ferguson and what was happening in Ferguson. And um, a young man wrote an article um, talking about the role of the church in Ferguson and the role of the church in this new movement that's, you know, being developed because it's still in development. And so, you know, I would like to talk about that, but not only that, but the role of the secular community. Does the secular community have a role at all? Because thus far, they've shown that, you know, for the most part, black lives do not matter, and they don't care. You have no, because some conservative lives, lives, conservative atheists matter. <laughs> oh, yeah. Yeah, 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 conservative atheists matter. And so what about the people that aren't conservative atheists? Do they not matter? Nope. That's the question. And this is why I keep telling you all to pay attention to these feelings of entitlement, privilege, and power. And who is jumping on that train? Who's bandwagoning on that? Whether that person is white, black, Latino, Asian, what have you. Pay attention. So if conservative atheist lives matter, well, what about everybody else? But that tells you what their platform is built on and who they are appealing to, which is why I am bewildered at the number of people of color that, you know, that, you know, will sing, you know, notes from the rafters about American atheists. Because um, Dave Silverman is the one who had that hashtag about conservative atheists matter. Mm-hmm. So they're telling you what they're about. They're telling you what they're about. You know, I don't understand why you don't understand it. But, you know, 
you need to pay attention to what's happening out here. You know, many of these larger organizations would not acknowledge that black lives mattered. And not only that, you have some people of color who got angry when they were questioned about black lives mattering. So you need to pay attention and to take a look around to see what's really happening and, you know, why they're working so hard and desperately to recruit minorities into their ranks, not only within their ranks, you know, putting them on boards. See, they put people on these boards, and the people really, you know, really have no voice or no say-so. There are people out here with organizations, and they do not listen to their board members. The board members are just to sit there and look pretty. You know, here's some free orange juice. There you go. And, you know, it happens. And it's happening quite a bit. So um, I feel that the memberships, you know, are really the people that run these organizations. And the number one way you can get their attention is through their pocketbook. Stop giving them money. Stop Mm -hmm. attending their conferences. Stop buying their books. Stop supporting them and the people that support them. You'll get their attention then. But there has been a desperate rush for them to recruit people of color, especially because there are a lot of new people and a lot of people that are, you know, questioning and doubting their religion. And they're coming over here to try to get some answers and understanding. And it's easy to get caught up in the hype, which is why you have these atheist cheerleaders out here, you know, the atheist spirit squad or club. And, you know, all they talk about is atheism, this and that, or they talk about, you know, uh, the church. They pontificate about why they left the church and why, you know, church people are, you know, now this is them saying it, it's not me, but they like to, you know, basically refer to, well, we'll just put it this way, they pathologize the black community and they pathologize the black church. And they like to call them different names, which, um, you know, it, it, it enrages me. And we call them out on it. But, again, it's about this superiority complex that a lot of people in this community have. And there are a lot of, a lot of brilliant people who are religious. And just like we have a whole bunch of idiots parading around in this community. And so... You know, it's it's interesting, but it's important for you all to understand what's happening. And in this article, it was written by a young man by the name of Joshua Crutchfield. And the title is Ferguson and the Church's Responsibility, a Call to Black Power. And so basically, you know, he was talking about, you know, how the church has been out here and, you know, not nearly as many as should be. But, you know, you have some churches out here that are, you know, being proactive in the social justice, you know, um, movement happening across the country. There was an article that talked about how North Carolina is now the new Selma. And for those that aren't familiar, they have the Moral Mondays in North Carolina, and they go and they protest you know, a lot of these laws and the policies that are on the books and, you know, the wealth inequality and bringing attention to these issues. In Atlanta, I think they have theirs on Tuesdays. 
and what do you call it? I forget what they call it, but it's, it happens on Tuesdays, and they go out and protest. And I remember when the More Mondays first started, and they were getting no press. And I remember we talked about it on this show. And, you know, there were some members of the secular community that went out to protest, you know, with the Moral Mondays. And this is why we bring you all this information. As a matter of fact, you know, I'm going to start posting more information, not only on my wall, but, um, you know, we created a People of Color Beyond Faith meetup. And basically, we're going to post everything that's happening across the country as we get the information. So for those of you out there that are listening, if you know about any meetings or any marches or any vigils or what have you, please let me know so that we can post it on um, the meetup groups. And it's not just for people that live, you know, in my area, but we want to do it across the country so that people will be informed. And I'm going to start pulling some information from the Black Lives Matter Tumblr page, which updates, you know, regularly on a daily basis, and start putting that information out there and just having a central repository of information so that you can see what's happening and so that you can get involved. It's very important that we, you know, get involved in this. And I understand that it's scary, and I understand there are some of us who can't get involved, like myself. You know, I can't walk those long distances, and I surely can't, you know, uh, have tear gas thrown at me. So, you know, I try to help in other ways through financial resources and, you know, like I said, sending them cases of water and, you know, asking them what they need and things like that. You know, we all can play a power, keeping people abreast of, you know, what's happening and the different protests happening across the country. So, you know, those are things that, you know, that I can add because whether people want to acknowledge it or not, social media is the reason why these these protests have been so successful and how they've been able to galvanize, you know, tens of thousands of people in a matter of hours. And so, you know, that's absolutely phenomenal. I know some people out there, and you know, they, you know, boo-hoo social media. But if it wasn't for social media, people wouldn't know who you were. So you need to think about that. And so, you know, in this article by Mr. Crutchfield, you know, he's talking about the church, and he says, White Americans must again be reminded that they cannot do what they want through the use of power and force. Black Americans must be reminded that we cannot appeal to the morality of people who, as Carmichael once argued, apparently don't have a conscience. And he was talking about Stokely Carmichael. And we must demand any means necessary that black lives matter and that we will not wait for justice. We must have justice now. And he's right. And so, you know, he's making his appeal to the church. We've been making our appeal to the secular community. And, you know, it's like herding cats over here. It really is. And I, I understand. It's the same thing that happens in the church. You know, we have some people that have these groups out here, and they can't understand why it's only the same three or four people or the same six or seven people coming out to, you know, to the meetings. And the same thing happens in a church. When they have these different clubs and these different members, they have a hard time getting people to volunteer, to, you know, be engaged. So it just happens across the board. And, you know, with 
the state of America now, especially since everybody's on social media, it's really hard to get people out the house, just to be honest with you. It is really hard to get people out the house. And this is why, you know, we have these different programs out here. And if we have them, you know, once or twice, you know, maybe even three times a year, people will come out because it's a special occasion, if you will. So it's just, it's been interesting. But hopefully with this movement that's happening, you know, people in this community will understand that, you know, secularism, atheism is just not enough. You know, we have to have a broader message. We have to appeal to a broader set of people in order to have any type of real success. And, you know, it's like that's going over the head of a lot of people. It's it's like they're just ignoring it. And it's just interesting, but, you know, more people are becoming involved because it only takes one or two to show up. And then when people see that, you know, somebody did show up, more people start to show up. And then the word gets around, and then you have more and more people showing up. So it's okay if it's only three or four people the first couple of times. Trust me, the word will get around. You know, so there's no need to be sitting there embarrassed because you can't get anybody out there. They'll come. Trust me. You know, and so... You know, with Mr. Crutchfield, he said, yes, we finally realized that the more things have changed, the more we have stayed the same. White supremacy has survived, adapted, and thrived over the years. It no longer needs individual acts of racism to persist. We no longer need the Bull Connors to see tangible ways black and communities of color have been systemically deemed inferior and unworthy of first-class citizenship. Binaries of good and bad cops are irrelevant. Once you become an agent of the state, you do its bidding regardless of your intentions. I hope you caught that. I hope you caught it. And right here he's saying the tone is changing for black folks and our allies. And so it was talking about, you know, the weekend where they had thousands of people, you know, going to Ferguson for a weekend of protest and civil disobedience. You know, he was talking about how there were black and white youth, you know, you know, displaying their consciousness and being fed, you know, and, and, and understanding and devouring the knowledge that was coming to them and understanding why we have to, you know, dismantle and deconstruct white supremacy. And these are young people, young people. These are the people we need to be appealing to. You understand? And especially the ones that are, you know, leaving religion. You know, we don't want them to, you know, jump out of the pan and directly into the fire. And that's what I'm starting to see in some cases. But, again, you know, right here he's talking about black women and how we're at the forefront of the struggle, organizing and strategizing about ways to get their demands met, you know. And so, yeah, this is what's happening, not only, you know, but also in the secular community. You know, you see a lot of women, you know, heading these organizations and out here on the forefront. And and that's a wonderful, you know, that's a wonderful thing. It's a wonderful development. We talked about um, black women, you know, in their roles and how women, black women in particular, have been co-opted, factored out, and written out of history. 
And so we need to make sure that that doesn't happen anymore. We need to pick that history back up and acknowledge these women that, you know, initiated and maintained these movements. You know, and, you know, one thing that I will say is, you know, there have been quite a few white Christians that have spoken up, you know, about the racism in this country. Quite a few of them that are out here marching. Um, in addition to that, you know, when they had those um, um, those markers that had the faces of black men on it at the shooting range, and, you know, there were quite a few white Christians that sent their pictures in and said, use my picture instead, because they were using the faces of, you know, young black men and just black men in general to use as targets. You know, and that's not a subliminal message. That is, that is, you know, <laughs> that's in your face right there. And so it's just interesting because, you know, you have people say, oh, well, it was just a target. You know, no one's going to pay any attention to that. It doesn't, it's not going to hurt anything. Yes, it does. When you have people out here, you know, shooting black youth, men and women, girls and boys, just shooting them out in the street like they're dogs. Mm-hmm. They won't even shoot. You get more time for shooting a dog than you will for a black youth. Especially if it's a police dog. (laughs) (laughs) I think they were trying to instill the damn police, I mean, the death penalty for that. And so, you know, we need to, we need to, we need to understand, you know, what's happening with these systems. And, you know, in his article here, he says, white Christians must detach themselves from the racist white power structure and fully identify with the suffering black and brown bodies that are, routine, that are routinely murdered and assaulted by the police. You know, and it's no longer useful for white Christians to appeal to a sentimental vision of love that is powerless and upholds the status quo. And white churches must be responsible for teaching their white congregations and communities how to be anti-racist. And so what's interesting with that is that we've talked about this on the show, about how um, when there were, um, oh, here's Red Ninja. Hey, Red, sorry about that, hon. I just saw your um, hand up. But, you know, I'm talking about the church and how, you know, um, a lot of these white churches have been built on racism because, you know, we've talked about how when they would make new laws or new edicts, if you will, how they would be read in church and how when they were having certain riots, you know, and and namely, you know, I've talked about Wilmington, and even what happened in Tulsa and Rosewood, the the white pastors would take some of these, the mob, you know, some of the lynch mob, to the homes of the black people and say, I know you're in there, come on out. And the white church, you know, is based on fear, and is based on oppression. And, you know, and we've talked about how it's going to take white people to stop racism, you know, and the white church, you know, it's just interesting. But um, you had something to add, Red Ninja? Oh, yeah, definitely. I mean, on the subject of um, racism in particular within the church, um, it's very easy for um, black Christians to forget that the Southern Baptist Church was founded based on their appeal to slavery as good, not just religiously, but for the economy, right? Right. So 
the Baptist church, the entire, there was a split um, in the mid-1900s of the church. You have the Northern Baptist Church, and then you have the Southern Baptist Church. And the Southern Baptist Church, ironically, which uh, quite a few um, black congregations are now networked in, that church was actually founded on the defense of slavery and the defamation of the rights of black men and women and children. Um, and it's not, it's only until the 1990s that they were actually forced to apologize on behalf of that legacy, but it's mm-hmm. not something that has easily gone away either. Um, and we're not just, and even once you progress past the point of having to address the racism, that is both that has happened both in the past and is happening currently because, I mean, we're still talking, I mean, in the year 2013, we still have churches in Alabama and Mississippi that are denying interracial marriage now. Right. This year. Right. So we can't sit here and pretend as if the church has progressed all the way, that every church is now post-racial and that America is post-racial overall. You know, that's a myth. And it's still something that has to be addressed and called out. But I want to get back to... So, yeah, post-racism is a myth, and it's just as much of a myth in the black church as it is in America at large. And um, it's actually, you know, I mean, it's interesting when you read about the history of, like, a lot of the evangelical universities, like Oral Roberts University. And, you know, once once you get past the racism, you still have to deal with the homophobia. You still have to deal with the sexism inherent right now in a lot of mm-hmm. things, both the church and the evangelical colleges. I mean, all Roberts university once had a ban on interracial marriage, you know, and exactly. there are still plenty of what we call complementarian theologians who assert that women had a very specified role as being underneath the head of the household. So there's still a full century behind Socially, right. not just racially. And exactly. that's why evangelical churches and the church at large in America today has such a huge problem, particularly in the South, they have such a huge problem with with um, social progress and actually addressing these issues. Because to them, it's a non-starter. If God wants it, then who are we to argue with saying that it's wrong? That's the attitude that has to be addressed. Exactly, exactly. And, you know, it's important. And, you know, tying it into, you know, about being poor, you know, especially in, you know, the black community and the Latino community, you know, right. in, in some cases they go to church so that they can hold on to some type of hope. And, you know, and, and and you know, be around other people. And, you know, sometimes that's the only way they can socialize because, right. you know, no one wants to feel like they're alone out here. And definitely no one wants to feel like it's never going to get better. And this is why, you know, things like this, you know, poverty and social justice, this is why it needs to be addressed in the church but also even in the secular community, but more so in the church. And the reason why I said that is because they have the bully pulpit. So they have the ear and the eyes and the money of the people. And unfortunately, you know, they're not really addressing any of the real issues 
they bring the people in, they make them feel good. You know, a lot of it is, you know, based on, you know, emotions and if you know how to hoop and all of that. But they're doing their members a disservice. You know, but there are yeah. some churches out there that are on the ball, and I have to give credit when it's due. They're out here, they're protesting, they're engaged, you know, they're encouraging, you know, their members to get involved. And we have to also remember less than 5% of the church supported Martin Luther King and the Civil Rights Movement. The majority of them yeah. wanted to keep the status quo, and they did not want to upset, you know, white people. You know, and so that's the same thing happening now. You know, not only, you know, with the church, but also even in a secular community. You know, they want to maintain the status quo because they don't want to upset, you know, their white benefactors. But in addition to that, some of them are laboring under the delusion that they're going to make a lot of money from from this. And especially if they're able to recruit a lot of, you know, people of color. But the reason why a lot of these organizations don't even really care if they have a lot, you know, a broad base of people of color is because they know the majority of the people of color, you know, don't have any money. They're poor. And that's one of the reasons why they don't care about these issues, especially social justice. Go ahead, Red. Well, I mean, it's pretty obvious that, you know, when you have, when you have, you know, the leaders of American Atheists trying to appeal to CPAC and talking about small government so that they can let corporate interests in and take over. I mean, that's, I mean, it, it, you, it couldn't be any clearer what the agenda is. It couldn't be clearer right. what time it is in the sense that what in a secular community, um, it's disturbing how easily corporate interest can and is allowing itself to be let in to overwhelm the interests of the common people. Right. Right. And it's easy to overlook just how many in the secular community, in fact, are poor in the black community. Those that are secular, those that are secular in the black community are not just not, I would, and I'm going to be very careful how I say this, but if you're a black person and you come out as a non-believer, um, the simple fact of the matter is that you are very much ostracized. And even if you're not ostracized, you are, I would say, um, you are you're put in a very discouraged position. Right. right? Um, and very easily in disrespected, you know, within the black community and within your family. And even if you don't somehow manage to get disowned in the process, if you if you do still manage to maintain relationships with your family and your friends and whatnot, um, you can't be looked at as anything but slightly defective. Um, something's wrong with you. We just need to get you to the right church and things of that nature. And you're put in a very right. uneasy position as a black non-believer. And eventually what tends to happen is when you, when you factor in that on top of, you know, the, how easily, how, how, how um, difficult it is to be able to maintain, you know, your jobs, putting food on the table, taking care of your children, things of that nature. It's very easy for, you know, the secular community to overlook just how much black citizens have to deal with on a daily exactly. basis. And especially black atheists. 
And if you're not able to step in as a secular organization and say, we're going to meet your needs if the church is telling you that you have to be back in church and you don't believe in them, if we can't meet those needs, then we failed. And if we can meet those needs, then that means we don't need the church, right? We don't need to appeal to the church. We don't need to actually come back and say, you know what, I was wrong. Please forgive me. I'll do whatever it is that you need me to. I'll convert in order to, in, order, in order to accept your service. Because I mean, that's very often what happens. Is that exactly. there are a lot of secular people who have to turn to the church, and who are shamed by that very same church, because you mm-hmm. there are the conversations that happen when you go to these daycare programs, and the church is telling you so. When's the last time you've been in church? Have you been paying your tithes? Come and join us for our Bible study now. Just, you know, where have you been? How is your relationship with the Lord? You need to turn back to Christ. So on top of the humiliation of being put in a position of being poor, there's also the humiliation of being a nonbeliever in the eyes of members of the church. And very often there's, you know, there's the pressure to simply say, you know what, if this is what I have to do to take care of myself, I'll join the church. And one day, if they ask me to convert, I may just end up doing it just so that I can settle in, I can be taken care of, and I can be a part of an institution that really is getting my needs taken care of, if nothing else. Exactly. And this is is a picture that American atheists are actually missing. All they're saying is, man, these people are dumb for actually being a part of the church. But they're not seeing the you know the church taking care of the daycare needs for their children. They're not seeing the educational programs. They're not seeing the actual internship programs. They're not seeing any of that. And if they are, they're willfully ignoring it and just calling religion stupid. When really religion is right. not quote unquote stupid. It's just wrong. But religion is very good at actually capitalizing on people's actual direct needs in that moment. Exactly. Religion is very crafty like that. Exactly. And it's that's, very good that's at saying it's very good at saying where would you be without us? Exactly. Exactly. And that's what we've been talking about since you know, we started this show. And we've talked about, you know, addressing people's needs and addressing the social issues. Um and, and it's just it's amazing because, you know, you even have some people of color in leadership positions in the secular community that just simply yeah. don't care about anything outside right. of what they want and what they're trying to do. And it's, it's unfortunate, but, you know, we can go into the communities and we can offer these services. And we can, because, I mean, in many cases, the services are not necessarily coming from the church itself. They're getting city, state, federal grants. And in many cases, right. these programs are, you know, through the city. And, and see, this is what I'm talking about because it's like, you know, looking around at some office space, you know, possibly, and starting, you know, a seat of light heap, you know, office space, you know, you hook that up through the government. That's how that works. And you can get a couple of people to come in and work part-time. The government pays you for your space. They pay for a certain degree of your, you know, your utilities. They give you enough money to run that program. It's in that you're able to have a couple of part-time people come in and do the data entry and to help the people in their neighborhood. And so and, and it's not based in a church. And so it's just it's interesting how all of this is coming about. 
But again, you know, going back to being poor, you know, again, people that daycare is expensive. You know, I've heard people yeah. saying they're paying four, five hundred dollars a week, and I'm like, I would just pass out if I had to pay that amount of money for daycare. But again, right. you know, you have the daycares, you have the churches, you have, like I said, the CETA programs, which helps with the light yeah. and the heat. You have other programs like their computer lab. I've set up a few computer labs for different churches. And so, you know, they let the people come in there. Then you have people teaching them how to use Office, teaching them how to create resumes and all of that. And these are services that are desperately needed in the community. And they're seeing that the church is offering that. So, of course, the church is going to get the credit, regardless of where the other money is coming from or what grant, you know, made that possible. But this is why I'm saying we need to, you know, engage, you know, the community. And to be honest with you, most of the people in the community are poor because there's no middle class anymore. You're either filthy rich or you're poor, period. You know, the middle class has pretty much been crushed and pushed out the way. And so, you know, these are things that we need to think about. But, again, you know, if conservative atheists matter, you know, these conservative atheists are wealthy. So what is that telling you? They only care about other wealthy people, and their actions have shown this. Their actions have shown it. And, you know, it's just amazing because when we point this out, we're told that we're troublemakers, we're told that we're whiners, we're called negative, and we're called all of these different things because, you know, we're charging, you know, a lot of these larger organizations with, to a certain degree, malfeasance, you know, just, you know, they just don't give a damn, and it's just well, you know, yeah. mm-hmm. and and it's very so, and it's very disturbing. But um, in the meantime, I mean, that's not going to stop. Frankly, that's not going to stop. Um, you know, a secular person who needs who has their needs met, it's not going to stop the GoFundMe's from being created when their lights run out. It's not going to stop the GoFundMe's from being created when food's needed, when tuition assistance is needed, and things of that nature. So, you know, while they're talking about, you know, pull yourself up on your bootstraps, um, we're easily missing people like friends that I actually know struggling day to day that I actually help out and on their GoFundMe accounts and those who are actually reaching out and saying, listen, I hear what you're saying about religion, but I need to eat, damn it. So help me. Exactly, 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 exactly. And see, that's the important part right there. You know, people, when they're in need, you know, they don't care who helps they them. They just need anywhere. help. Exactly, exactly, exactly. And, and that's what we've been trying and, to and, get and across. If somebody, and if somebody, right, and, and if somebody says, hey, listen, I'm coming from, you know, so-and-so Episcopal Church or so-and-so Presbyterian Church, here's $200, I love you. Well, religion ain't so bad after all, is it? Right. Christians are not exactly. idiots anymore. They're not dumb. They're people that right. are actually reaching out to help their fellow man. And it's a lot harder to simply come out here and say, all Christians are this or that or the other. Just like it's hard for Christians, or it should be hard for Christians to say, all atheists are dumb or inconsiderate or anything like that. But, I mean, that's just the nature of being human. Exactly, exactly, and see, and that's the whole thing, you know, because I know I've, it's it's just interesting because, I mean, I've had different situations, whereas, you know, I'd be out somewhere, you know, whether it was a store or, you know, 
wherever I was. And I would have someone walk up to me. And I remember one time it was this young lady. And she was walking towards me. And you know when someone is walking towards you because they want to talk to you, right? And, yeah. you know, I have this I have this thing about space, right? So when people are yeah. walking up to me about to ask me something, I tell them when to stop because I don't know what it is. I guess it's some OCD thing, but I don't like people really, really close to me. And so this young mm-hmm. woman, she was telling me about her situation and what was happening and asking if I could help her. And I said, well, you know, because I guess she needed to catch the bus. And that was this situation. And so, you know, I went back in the store because, you know, I don't I don't carry cash. You know, I think a lot of us are cashless. And so I went in the store and bought some gum or whatever it was and came back out and gave her the change. And I think she was only asking for like three or four bucks to catch the bus. And I think I gave her um, like $14 and change because the gum was only like 50 cents. And so I gave her what was left mm-hmm. over because I got you no know, money back. And she was like, I didn't need that much. And I was like, well, help somebody else. You know, and she was sitting there stunned, and she gave me a hug, you know, because I couldn't stop that. So she gave me a hug and all of that, and, you know, she was like, God bless you. And I was like, well, I don't believe in God. I said, but, you know, if you do, that's fine. I said, just help somebody else when you can. And, you know, I remember doing that for, um, you know, helping this one woman out. And at the time, and this was several years back, when I was unemployed, so I was, you know, getting unemployment benefits, which aren't a lot, you know, and, right. but, you know, I did the best that I could with what I had. And so this one woman, um, I was at my car putting my groceries in the car, and she walked up to me. And, again, you know, this is not anything new about people walking up on me. And let me explain a little bit about that. You know, I was in the military, and I've taken martial arts. So people walking up on me, I'm automatically going into defense mode, Right. Right, 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 and right. The reason why I tell people, eh, it's not really good to sneak up on me, <laughs> you know. And, um, you know, so anyway, she walked up to me, and she was talking about her and her kids not having any food and not having any money, and I'm looking at this woman in her face, and I could see the desperation in her eyes, and she was just asking for like five or ten bucks or whatever. And I said, hold on. So I put my stuff in my car. And I said, come on, come go with me. And, you know, I grabbed the shopping cart and we went in the store. And, you know, I, basically I went shopping for her. You know, we got some hamburger uh-huh. meat. We got the chicken. You know, we got a big thing of juice for the kids for something to drink. You know, got uh, a cake because I said, you, you need some dessert. And, you know, rice and macaroni and all of this stuff. And, you know, bread. And I And I literally went shopping for her. I said, you know, when do you get paid? And, you know, because I guess she was, you know, waiting on, you know, her um, her check. And she says, well, it'll be coming Friday, blah, blah, blah. And I'm like, okay, so we're going to give you enough food for a week. And she was like, well, we only need it for a few days. I'm like, well, the kids are hungry, you know, maybe they can have seconds, you know, here. You know, and that woman cried. And, you know, it was, it was you know, quite a bit of stuff. And I said, okay, so... I bought the food, and that's fine. I said, but I can't take you home. I don't know you. 
And I mean, you know, and she was like, that's okay, I'll leave a little block here. And so, you know, and so it was just interesting because it's like, you know, she was surprised that I did that. And that was another one of those God bless you moments. And I was like, I don't believe, but, you know, I do believe in helping people. And so um, it's just, it's interesting because you help people because they need help, not because you want something in return. And unfortunately, I'm seeing, you know, some of that behavior, you know, over here in this community and just in the community at large. You have some people that will only help other people if they feel they can get something out of the situation. And I think that's wrong. You help people because they are in need. You never know. That could be your mother or your father one day. For all you know, when you were growing up, your parents probably went out there and had to ask somebody for help so that you can be fed. Absolutely. You know what I mean? Or to get you Absolutely. that new pair of shoes. You know, you got holes in your shoes, and your parents don't want to see right. you. You know what I mean? Well, you know, you just have to put yourself in the other person's, you know, place. You know, show some compassion. Show some empathy. It's important. It's right. important, but we're losing that, and that's unfortunate. Right. And to me, it's, it's almost it's astonishing to me, too, that we so easily lose sight of that because we condemn the church for, you know, the kind of behavior where they go, well, if you're struggling right now, it's because you've got, you know, secret sin in your life or you're not being faithful enough to God. You must not be paying right. your tithes and offering, things of that nature. Um, the church does have those conversations with people, and that stings. It hurts because I've had them. Right. Anthony, oh, you're not able to make your rent this month? Have you paid your tithes? Well, maybe that's just a sign from God telling you you need to press harder for your – and stuff like that. And it's just like, are you kidding? So, and when you hear that kind of rhetoric coming from, you know, some of these CPAC atheists, when they say, pull pull yourself up by your bootstraps and save your money and do this and do that, it's just like, to me, that's like the preacher telling me that I have not put in enough tithes or that I didn't pull myself. You know what I mean? Like, it's that kind of rhetoric that I'm hearing coming out of their mouths. It's exactly what the preacher saying. Mm-hmm. It's like a preacher oh, yeah, telling but me I'm not you, pouring enough into his, you know what I mean? Ministry. Yeah, exactly. And it's the same thing because it's like I've seen some non-believers say to some believers, well, you gave your, you know, you gave money in church and you did all of this. Why didn't you just keep that money and help you? But no, I'm not going to help you because you gave your money to that church. And it, it's the same rhetoric. It's the same freaking rhetoric and when I do you know when I contrast or compare the church and the secular community you have people out here that are angry at me for doing that and saying that you know the atheist community is nothing like the church but they're just like them it's a it's a mirror and it's, it's just it's it's wild because when you start pointing it out and showing them the things like with the tragedy in North Carolina, you had so many atheists talking about well he wasn't an atheist he was an anti-theist you know it, it was the same no true Scotsman you know logical fallacy and it's just it's amazing what you see over here and the hypocrisy and it's sickening it really is it's absolutely yeah. sickening. And it's hypocritical, yeah. and, and that's the main thing. Oh, yeah, yeah, and I and I would say it, the reason why we have to be harder on non-believers is that, you know, we're supposed to be the group. We're supposed to be free thinkers. We're supposed to be the group follows evidence where it leads. You know, we're supposed right. to be the group that is willing to change their mind when they're told that they are wrong. 
and there's evidence for that. Right. If you are if you are shown that there's an error in your thinking, you're supposed to at the very minimum at least entertain the idea that I could be wrong and then revise it when it is proven that that is the case. And too many people are not doing that. Exactly, exactly. And and you know, and but you know, you have too many people in this community who think that they're never wrong. And that's one of that's why I said it's like herding cats because everybody thinks that they're right. But the thing is, is that that's the same thing that happens with these churches. That's why you got 15 million denominations. And so it, it's just it's, it's amazing because I always thought and I labored under the delusion that the people in this community knew better and would do better. And in all actuality, you know, some of the I've met some of the most horrible people I've ever met in life in this community. You know, I've experienced yeah. more racism than I've ever occurred in life, you know, in this community. I've been called N-word so many times over here. And, I mean, I, you know, in my real life, I had only been called the N-word, you know, a few times, you know, younger growing up. And it was usually, you know, some people driving by in a car, and you would just hear them say, you know, the N-word. But, you know, you got people here that will send you emails, telling you that you're an N-word and what makes you an N-word. And so it's, right. it's just interesting. It's the people, they show up with their attitude. Because, you know, going back to something that I said earlier about how some of our white allies don't believe us when we tell them how hard it is to be black, how difficult it is to be a person of color, and what we have to deal with. And they don't believe us. But if you get somebody like Tim Wise telling them, then they start to believe it. But why couldn't you believe it when the words came out of my mouth, when I showed you what I've been dealing with? So it's just it's absolutely amazing, and that's the reason why I'm looking at some of the people of color in this community who are jumping on certain bandwagons because they want the money. And they think that the money, the power, the prestige, entitlements, and all of that comes with, you know, uh, being with this particular organization. And in all actuality, I just don't think it's going to end well. And so, you know, it, well, it, it saddens me on a number of levels. Go ahead. Well, yeah, yeah, and, and it should. And it's one of those things that um, it's very interesting, too, that even now, even if you – I guess even if we disregard the issue of racism within both the religious and the secular community, the sheer tokenism that takes place within both communities is enough to make me just flip my shit. Like, okay, when I was in Campus Crusade, like, okay, I was in Campus Crusade for Christ. This is a true story. I actually um, volunteered for Campus Crusade for Christ when I went to college for the first time, for like the first two Mm -hmm. years. And, you know, I can't tell you how many times I would actually, I mean, there now, okay, there are people within, you know, the Christian community that are honestly just, they don't, they don't care whether you're black, white, Asian, Arab, or whatever. Um, and I was never, I'd never necessarily got the idea, thank goodness, that I was ever treated differently because I was black. That was never really the case. But what was interesting was how many questions I would get about just simple, basic things about my life. Like, do you get called the N-word? 
do you get, I mean, do you experience a lot of racism as a black man and things like that? And I would actually be happy to engage those questions and actually talk about what it was like and how I had to actually guard my actions. There are those that are genuinely curious about what it's like to live as a black person and really do listen. But then there were other times where a comment was made about, you know, how well I spoke English or how well, I, oh. how proper I was and things of that nature. And I've never heard black guys talk like that. Where do you live? And just stuff like that. And I'm thinking, you know, that really shouldn't matter. You know, right. And they would ask me, do you talk like this to all of your friends? As if but I, you know what, though? You know, I, I, yeah. I, I feel you. I that, understand that, where you're coming I, from. You know what I mean? And, 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 no, you I, know what, like, and on the one hand, I can't really get super mad, but it was always annoying as hell. Like, no, yeah, of course it is. You assume that no, I have I to was, actually flip my conversation style if you're white versus black? Right. Well, this is, you know okay, I mean? so this is what I'll say. This is what I'll, oh, sorry. Hello? Can you hear me? Sorry. Oh, yeah, sorry. I can. You can so go I was going to say, um, I was just going to say that, like, on a certain level, I do feel you when you're talking about when white people ask you those kinds of questions, and sometimes they're genuinely interested. But I find, but I, but I also feel like this, and this is something that we had um, that brought got brought up on a panel that we did at the um, Movie Social Justice Conference, and so um, we were talking about, you know, whether or not like black organizations need to accommodate white people, and you know that kind of a thing. So. But Anthony Penn made the point that, you know, we, there's, you know, there's just a lack of sort of, um, a lack of awareness, you know what I mean, on the part of white people that really needs to change, right? So I, on the one hand, yeah, you may, you're not going to be able to have direct experience in terms of what a black person goes through, but have you ever picked up a book, you know what I mean? Like we write, like we, we, we write our experiences down. You know what I mean? There right. are white people who have, who have actually, you know, there are two books, you know, one by that, um, by the guy, gentleman's name, I can't remember. There's black like me. And there's another book by a white woman who also underwent a process to change her skin complexion. Right. And they basically told the story of what happened and how it opened their eyes to those experiences. So if you don't believe us, at least pick up those books. You know what I mean? So like on a certain hand, like I, I try to be, I try to be kind to those people, but on a certain level, I'm giving them major side eye. You know what I mean? Because I feel like if you really, 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 really were interested, you would at the very least go to your local library and pick up something by Toni Morrison or Richard Wright or W.E.B. Boyd. Or any of a num- or any of a hundred biographies that have been written by Black people throughout time. Right. You know what I mean? So like yeah. you right. know, and as far as like the whole, and as far as like the whole like you speak English so well and all that type of shit. Like you know what I mean? Like I usually come back on them with something that they normally don't expect, which is oh well, so do you. You know what I mean? Because I want <laughs> because I want them to sit there. With their, with their blatantly racist assumption that they just made, that somehow because I'm black, that um, I'm not supposed to speak proper English. You know what I right. mean? Right. It's just, oh, it's yeah, just right. insanity. Oh, yeah. But it, see, it, the it, thing it that gets about the whole situation. No, what I was going to say is, you know, the thing that gets me about that is, you know, what you all are saying here, 
about how there are some white people who demand that we educate them, and they don't want to go out and educate right. themselves. And even after we tell them about these things, they still don't believe us. So you just wasted right. my time, my energy. Right. Well, go ahead, Red. No, what I was, and that's what I mean. It's like it, it just, it just gets worse and devolves from there because not only are you, in a sense, being demanded to be to basically fill them in on the world as if they live under a damn rock in America, but even worse than that, the behavior starts to change. And it's interesting to me how, like, when I actually, not in both Christian and secular organizations. You know, white people will often come up to you and they'll say, it's just so remarkable that you as a black person are this and that and the other, and how would you like to come join our meetings and be our token black minister slash (laughs) black, you know, lecturer on our side? And this goes for both secular and Christian organizations. You know, I've had situations where they would come and say, we would love for you to preach at our congregation. I think it would be awesome if you showed our white audiences how awesome a black man can be, and it's just like, <laughs> you right, yeah. dirty motherfucker. Really? Exactly. Exactly. Because, really? I mean, I had, that, I had that happen to me with, um, you know, I went to visit um, a secular organization. They had something going on. And I went there, and afterwards, you know, I had a lot of the older people walking up to me saying, we need you here, we need you here, we need, you know, people like you. And I'm like, all you want me for is a photo op. And I was like, you know, because, I mean, you know, I know I could have gotten these people to donate a lot of money to, you know, some causes that I had, but I'm not that type of person. I just can't sell myself out for some money. You understand? And I refuse to be anybody's token or their damn puppet. I'm sorry. I mean, you know, it's, it's a little part of you that has to die when you give up that agency. I just I just right. believe that. So, yeah, I mean, it's just... Be, that whole thing is just insulting, too. Because it's just like, can't I just be the guy that gets to talk about right. things that are important, regardless as to my race or not? Can't I just be an individual that gets to actually talk about what matters to all of us instead of being tokenized and made out to be this prop that says you don't have to be scared of black people anymore? Red, you give it. You, look, don't talk about being props because you're going to make me get started on something. I'm being serious. Don't get me started. Don't get me started talking about props now. Okay, I'm just, okay. I'm just saying though. Because then I'll start saying, talking because... about wigs and buttons. Oh, and, uh, <laughs> you know what I mean? Oh, okay. So, don't make me start singing now, ladies. You have me singing the old Negro spiritual over here. Now, you know, <laughs> you know going up the rough no, side no, of the no, mountain, no. you know. <laughs> but, but that's real, though. I mean, it's oh. just like. It's just like there's so many times where, you know, I've worked for, you know, and again, you know, in Campus Could Save for Christ, you know, I'd have people come up to me saying, you're not unlike any black person I've met and this and that and the other. And it's just like, with all due respect, sir, ma'am, you need to talk to more black men and women. Like, why aren't you reaching out? Right. It's just like, none exactly. of that. 
should exactly. matter. It's like, exactly. where are your presuppositions coming from that we should have exactly. a proven damn thing? And it's, it's just, just like, you know, it's just Speak to us. Oh, go ahead. Actually ask us who we are as individuals and as human beings. Get to know some of these people. You know, we're not right. we're not the boogeyman. Right, <laughs> exactly. We're human beings. You know what? Oh, go ahead, Kim. Go ahead. No, 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 Brenda. Go ahead, honey. No, no, no. Go ahead and make your point out. I was gonna, I was gonna talk about something related, but you can go ahead. Oh, okay. But yeah, and the thing that gets me about this is that with many of them, they don't know any people of color outside of the occasional meeting where a person may show up out of curiosity. A person of color may show up. But then what's interesting, you know, when you when you say that, you know, get out and talk to people more, you know, they a lot of people don't want to make that effort. But then you got some people of color who are so desperate to be in positions of power and privilege that, you know, they don't make themselves known. They don't make you get to know them and 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 they know how to play the game. I'll just put it that way. And, you know, but there's always an ulterior motive, you know, and, and, you know, in order to get something, you have to give something up. And people need to understand and recognize that. So, Raina, go ahead. Yeah, yeah so um, I was just going to say, like, you know, even when it comes to, like, you know, people of color who come from, you know, more urban environments or whatever, you know, people who get labeled ghetto, you know what I mean, which is just a horrible, horrible thing to call someone, Right. But um, they were, you know, there's a um, study, I think it's called the People's Report. And what I love about the People's Report is that, you know, the person who um, has implemented it is a professor who basically trains people to tell their own stories. So this research is done by people who live, you know, in these communities who have, you know, dealt with incarceration, who, you know, been in in the school-to-prison pipeline, you know, talking, um, who are basically compiling this research and telling the story of people who live in these communities. And, um, you know, one of the things that I think um, that was really, really great that he illustrated was just that, you know, so often you hear that there's a culture in communities of color that's toxic, that, you know, that we don't want to work, that we don't have any pride in where we live, you know, because if all we, cause, you know, like Don Lemon said, if we just pull up our, pull up our pants, and pick up our trash, you know, that would go a long way, you know. But, um, you know, what they found was that actually there's a great deal of community and racial pride among people who live in the inner city. So it's not, they, they recognize that their circumstances have nothing to do with, with their value as human beings. And I just thought right. that was so lovely. You know what I mean? Because so often we we have this perception that you know, or that it comes from the media that these people must not think much of themselves, that they don't have any pride in place of place and pride of community. You know what I mean? That they have no ambition. You know what I mean? And I just thought that that yeah. was um, so important. You know, to to recognize it's like we really need to question the sorts of assumptions that we make you know, about people, you know, especially these knee-jerk assumptions, especially about the most vulnerable people, you know? Exactly. Exactly. But that's true. Also, you have to remember, too, that a lot of these very same stereotypes 
have been ingested by a lot of the same black community, and they believe those very demeaning things about themselves. Right, right. Which is the most right. disappointing thing. You know, like, they Exactly, and that's why I brought that up, because I think it's so important. You know what I mean? That, you know, I don't think that the man who did that study was expecting that particular result to come out. I don't know that he had any expectations. But, you know, that's one of the main things that he said that he, that he sort of was happy to discover, you know. And, um, you know, I think, and, you know, having worked with children in, in sort of inner city communities and seeing how they operate, I, I know that to be true. You know what I mean? That, um, right. that they, they really do have a pride of place and a pride of, a pride of, of, of who they are. You know what I mean? Despite what their surroundings are. Um, you know, I think I think some of that obviously gets robbed from them as they get older and they have, you know, more uh, contact with, you know, various institutions, you know, the school system, yeah. the criminal justice system, all of these other things. But I think that I think it's important uh, to, to know that because we are always told all of these really negative things about the mentality of people who live in the inner cities and and what have you. So I think it's important that we, uh, that we know that. So. Absolutely. I agree. Yeah. And it's important, it's important too, that um, we remember that the, the very same, like, you know, white media spreading these memes have no fucking idea what it's like to live in these communities. None. Absolutely none. None. So it's being spread by design. It's not based on any research. It's not based on any right. empirical evidence. It's based on their presupposition that that has to be the right. case. Right. That black reason. people are defective. Yeah. It's all from the assumption that black people are defective. Right. Exactly. And then you and start pointing out and that microaggressions, they get defensive. Yeah. Right. Right. Absolutely. Absolutely. And, you know, and, and when we say in, in situations where we know black people are struggling, and that minorities in general are struggling, not just black people, the Latino community, the Asian community, and the Arab American community as well. So we can't forget about them either. When all of us are struggling, um, and you point out what can be done to actually fix a lot of their situations, you know, the media gets defensive and says, oh, well, that won't work because of, you know, whatever dumbass reason that they can come up with. So. Yeah, exactly. exactly. Like they, the solutions, the solutions, staring them in the face, but they want to acknowledge it because now they actually have to help. Yeah, it's it's just it's 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 interesting because when you try to point this out and explain why some of the behavior or some of the things that they say, you know, why it's just why it's troublesome. You know, some of them get upset right. and, and and then turn around and say, well, I don't know, you know, what it takes to make people happy. So then it turns into a you people thing. And it just, it's just, it's just outrageous. You know, you try to you point mean, like, the scandal the other person. day. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah, and so like that, just, that it's, whole it's, scene with uh, the cop who was uh, ranting at, at Liz you know, talking about what, what does it take to make you people happy, essentially. Right. Yeah. Sorry. Yeah, sorry. And I just saw that. that just happened on, a, on, on Scandal, so I had to bring it up. Cause, 
<laughs> that candle was really, really hard to watch. It really was. So, yeah. I still feel some kind of way about it. So. <laughs> so it's just interesting, but, you know, it's a lot that we can talk about, you know, as far as, you know, what we've experienced and, you know, the faux pas of some people and the microaggressions. And, I mean, these are things that we bring out to the forefront, you know, quite often. And, you know, we're going to talk about poverty even more this year and start addressing, you know, that situation and what we can do and what we need to do because, you know, you got people out here who – look at poor people as though there's something wrong with them. You have some of these churches that basically tell people, you know, if you're poor, then, you know, pretty much God doesn't love you. And it's just, it's horrible. It's absolutely horrible. And that's why you see some of the behavior that you see, especially at these mega churches. And, you know, I just want people to stop and think. The pastor didn't get rich. He was, if he was already rich before he started the church, that's one thing. But for the most part, many of them were not rich before they started the church. They got rich because you gave them your money collectively. Right. And you right. have to think about these things. And if what they were saying is true about, you know, sowing a seed and tithing, then my question is, who, you know, who does that pastor in that church tithe to? And who are, what are they sowing their seeds in? Because people in the church should not have to give money if the church is living by those same tenants, because they should be handing out bags of cash every time they open the door. So, you know, people are falling for the okey-doke. And I'm like, but, you know, the same thing is happening over here in this community. Just pay attention. Pay attention to what you see happening and what's going on. And, you know, more and more is being exposed as time time goes on because there are things that we know and we have some insight on that we just can't talk about quite yet. But it's just a matter of time. And, you know, it's just disheartening. And I really did expect more from this community, but that's on me because I shouldn't have had any expectations at all, you know. So it's just as unfortunate. But on that note, we're going to wrap it up. Next week we're going to talk about the N-word. The week after that we're going to talk about Jim Crow. And the week after that we're going to talk about what, Raina? Let's see if you can remind me. Um, oh. I appreciate you and I appreciate your support 
and, you know, we love you. And so more information should be coming out. And, again, if you have any activities that are happening in your area, um, please let us know so that we can put it on the People of Color Beyond Faith Meetup page and have that information so it doesn't have to be based in Chicago. It can be anywhere in the country, even over in the Netherlands. I have people over there sending me things at times. So, I mean, London, Netherlands, wherever, just send it to me so I can put that information out there. You know, we're trying to be a central repository of information. So, all right, everybody, we are here to challenge you to think and live for yourself, not convert you. That's Black Free Thinkers, and we're out. Take care of